Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you are watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And we're going to have a little bit of an HDR primer. We're going to talk more about this as we go through uh, 2023. So we'll just talk a little bit about some of the definitions and terms and hopefully uh, um, get people thinking about it at least. Uh, so we'll work on that on the second hour. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Um, uh, Bill, what do we have? Uh, I think oh, sorry, it's Mitch, Mitch today. Sorry, Mitch, yeah. what do we have? Uh, first question in from Josh Kaufman at Pittsburgh, PA. How do you convince clients to provide assets in a timely manner for production? Uh, Courtney? Always a good motivator is cash, money. Because, uh, for example, if I'm providing teleprompting services, I have to get the scripts from the client ahead of time to prep them for the teleprompter. And you never know what they're going to be. And if they drop them on you on the set, you know, it could be 70 pages of stuff that was cut and pasted from an Excel spreadsheet. And so trying to format it for the teleprompter can be problematic. So I just tell them, you know, if you get it to us the day before, 24 hours before, no charge. If you get it to us after five o'clock the day before, overtime charges go on the bill. So that's the motivator for them to get it in early. You go, John. Walk softly and carry a big stick. <laughs> go ahead, Mitchell. Anybody will tell you that does production that the toughest part of the job is collecting all the materials you need so you have them begin production because it's very hard uh, to start a production and start and stop because you're waiting on assets to come in, particularly from the client. So I make it part of the, um, I won't call it a contract, but it's certainly a letter of understanding of who's doing what and when things are being delivered. And uh, we won't start the production until we have everything. Yeah, I, I think that we, um, it's a constant problem. <laughs> You're not going to get what, you know, the, the end. It, it's just a matter of if there's a deadline, everyone's going to run right up to that deadline. So the idea is to try to coax deadlines out earlier before you actually, you know, need them to make it work. Saying, hey, we really have to have it. And really what works there is that you have to kind of get that agreed on in the, in the pipeline. And, and it looks fine when they see it. When you first talk about it three months before the actual job, oh, yeah, that looks good. And then they, they're running out of time. But what we do is we move that deadline so we have a little bit of safety there. And it gives us an opportunity mostly to nag them. <laughs> so we don't nag them until then. We're like, hey, just a reminder that that's coming up in three days or that's coming up tomorrow. And then the day after. And then it, then and then one thing that's important is you don't you can never forget the deadline. So if they miss the deadline, you keep on saying, hey, uh, we're a couple days behind that. How are we doing? And it's, it can be nice, but it creates this pressure <laughs> you know, to get it done. And a lot of the things that we do is, is we, um, uh, we talk a lot about the fact that you're, the quality of the event, especially when doing live events, the quality of the event is going to suffer because they're not getting us the stuff in time. And you do that in email and you do it constantly because if something goes wrong, basically what happens is all those emails are like a big cushion that sits in front of you if someone tries to put you under the bus later. <laughs> so, so the thing is, like, yeah, there was a long string of emails that kept on telling you that this isn't going to work well if I don't get the stuff that I need. And so we, we mostly just worry about, like, we're going to do everything we can to make it work. We're going to dance with whatever they send us, but we're going to keep on telling them that this may not turn out because they're not giving us what we need. And that makes it really hard for them to come back and go, why didn't this work? I'm like, well, there was a long string of emails that said it wasn't going to work if I don't have the, if I don't have what I need. And so that tends to be how we kind of approach it. The other thing is we tend to overbuild. I mean, I tend to overbuild things. I tend to build things so that I can dance with what the client does. And ever, recently I didn't do that and it was painful. So, so you have to kind of build into your pipeline the ability to dance a little bit with that. For instance, like a good, a good one is playback. 
Playback is something that you always get the files at the very last minute. <laughs> and we tell people that, you know, hey, we need to reconform these. We need to make them work. We need to, you know, test them. And there's going to be a bunch of problems. And these are all the things. And, and always, there's always issues. Now we have, if you give us all the playback ahead of time, usually it's on some kind of hyperdeck. Um, it's on a hyperdeck. It's on something else. If you give them to us right at the last minute, we usually have another system, whether that's QLab or Softron or, or something that we can just drag a file in and play it out. And so we have kind of a way to manage that. If they gave us all of them that way, it'd be pretty difficult, but usually it's like, you know, some stragglers. And then, you know, again, there's equipment that makes it easier for you to manage, you know, so things like uh, uh, EVSs. <laughs> we were getting stuff on a show last week that we were getting the files um, minutes before the show started. And then we're like building, you know, we had an EVS operator sitting there building, you know, the the segments um, during the show, all the way up until the end of the show, just building the segments as they come in. But you have to have the tools to do that. You can't do that with Final Cut, you know, or Resolve or Premiere or anything else. You need something that's built for uh, that, that process and it's expensive. Go ahead, Bill. I also had to learn to decouple my emotions from uh, whether I thought they were messing with me by delaying things turned in. I had a circumstance once where a client told me, you must have this here on the desk uh, on reception Wednesday at eight o'clock in the morning or everything's going to fall apart. It was stuff for a board meeting that was happening Thursday. So I respected that, worked really hard, got it set up Wednesday. I came back for a meeting on Friday and it was still sitting there and I got a little chuffed. I went, you know, I really worked hard to get this to meet your deadline. And now you're not even picking it up. What's going on? Well, it wasn't until a week or two later that I was actually talking to the CEO and it turned out that on uh, that morning, they had a problem that it was absolutely mission critical, all hands on deck. So the original priority got just swept aside and I was part of it getting swept aside. And so my emotions attached to it were kind of false. It weren't, it wasn't that they were ignoring me. It was that they were running their business and doing something more important than my piece of it. So it gave me a little calm about just settle down, do your job as best you can, and don't worry about the little things. Next question. Steve Uroff in Madison, Wisconsin, asking, are the specific technical or historical reasons that 720p and 1080i became broadcast standards versus all the possible 16 by 9 ratios? I go ahead, Mitchell. For the most part, it's, uh, it's, it's the dollars because to build out that infrastructure to 4K and beyond uh, is a very expensive proposition, particularly for networks that have affiliates out there. Um, and even cable systems and even satellite. I guess satellite could do it easiest than any of them. But 1080 is the lowest common denominator uh, next to 720. I haven't seen much 720p. I see mostly 1080i on the standard broadcast channels, CBS, Fox, ABC, NBC, all of those guys. Thank you, Courtney. Well, it was a long and torturous route. It took them years to establish the 16 by 9 aspect ratio. They had conferences between the television engineers and the um, uh, uh, cinematographers, uh, ASC, and they had meetings to determine what would be the best aspect ratio to compromise between uh, widescreen 235 and uh, at its widest or at its most wide cinemascope and uh, television, which was four by three, and, and they arrived in the middle instead of one eight five or two three or two to three. They came up with a 16 by nine ratio and it was done also. The 720p was the first, um, uh, the first iteration of high def because the, uh, you were using uh, CRTs at the time and uh, they couldn't uh, handle the uh, 
higher speed of the 1080, the more data, the, the deflection, the faster deflection of the uh, 1080p originally. Or, so they went to 1080i, which they could handle. And the second was the cable operators that had to carry uh, the uh, cable uh, channels in order to fit all the cable channels into the current bandwidth and also the broadcast to fit it into the six megahertz bandwidth that had been assigned. They didn't have enough bandwidth to send 1080p originally. And of course, the cable companies could cram more channels in at 720p. And so a lot of cable companies still only handle 720p uh, out there. So a lot of them don't even handle 1080i. Satellite broadcast also, a lot of it is 720p. So it has to do with bandwidth. And yeah, the story, 1080i, you have definitely bandwidth, 1080i, especially if you want 60 frames a second. So if you want 60 frames a second, which is what the uh, Japanese highly preferred, um, they really like, Japanese uh, engineers seem to really like sharpness and and uh, frame rate. So there, the, you know, things when you go to Japan, things are very sharp. <laughs> Sometimes a little more sharp than an, an American can can look at, and uh, and then and then they really like uh, frame rate. And so um, the uh, which is, I mean, I like both of those things too. So the frame, especially the frame rate part. So, um, but getting sixty frames a second at 1080p was a lot of bandwidth. Even now, when we do that, when we go to sixty frame 1080p a lot of things in our system that we're working sometimes don't work. Um, you know, there's there's A and B level, there's a whole bunch of other things that have to happen that, that it's it's a hard format to work in. Um, and uh, my understanding was is that ESPN really wanted 720p because they wanted 60 frame progressive for sports so they could do replays. <laughs> so so the, um, because replays in the, in the early days with interlace, you'd see the interlace as it froze. Um, and so uh, ESPN really wanted that along with others in sports. And so the 720p didn't use more bandwidth than the 1080i, but still gave you the 60 frames a second, whole frames um, that were there. And so we've, you know, and still most TV as, as Courtney astutely pointed out, don't, you know, don't, don't carry, uh, they could still, it's all 1080i. And it probably won't. It's it's unlikely that most TV will change because um, the rev the revenue that they have coming in from terrestrial TV is is you know falling like a rock, and so they don't have the money to put into like rebuild. It's not rebuilding the cameras; it's rebuilding the entire pipeline, every broadcast location, everything has to have new equipment, and uh, no nobody has the money to do that anymore. So so it's it's probably not going to TV will probably not significantly expand past 1080i, and that's that's how. Most of the streaming now is at 4K or, or in some cases more, um, and so most you know TV is slowly becoming kind of the the small screen. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I was just going to uh, add to that that the uh, the stations or the networks are pretty much stuck at 1080i for quite some time. Forever, and, you know, even yep, maybe uh, for, <laughs> for forever. <laughs> like, like here's the crazy thing is there's so much talk about 4K and how great it is on your uh, satellite, for example. I have DirecTV. I pay a premium for 4K. Guess what? There's only about four channels that broadcast in 4K. The rest of it's 1080i. Yeah, and and, and we're going to see, you'll see more and more online channels that are good doing 4K and, and streaming in 4K and doing a lot of other things. And you'll, you'll see, you know, the Olympics were streaming to YouTube in 4K. Um, and some of those things, and you'll see most likely, again, I think one of the things you'll see is MLS will probably start at 4K60. That's my guess, is that next year with Apple, it'll start at 4K60, but it will keep growing from there. They don't have, they're not, they're compl Apple is the first one that is completely unrestrained for sports coverage, you know, for a major, for anything major. Um, and so what, what we're going to see is most likely, again, I think we're going to get to 8K120 in, by season four. 
Um, I mean, that, and AK120 is not a, because the Apple TVs are, have been quietly been built for, so the, the last, I think the last Apple TV or the last two are using uh, HDMI 2.1. And so they're prepared to do 8K60. Um, so they could do that now. Um, and you could put another chip in there. And it, actually, yeah, well, they can do 4K 120, definitely. And I believe it's 8K60 out of the, if I remember correctly, about HDMI 2.1. So, um, so that that frame, high frame rate, high resolution is something that I think Apple will um, keep on moving down the path, at least the frame rate. The frame rate actually, make, the resolution is actually, I think we talked about yesterday, is probably the least important thing to the average human eye. Frame rate and color turn out to be much, impact someone much more than than the resolution. So, you know, 4K 120 will probably come before 8K 120. Um, but I got to tell you, 8K 120, it's just like looking at a window. <laughs> you're just looking, you're like, you're just looking at a window at that point. I think Guy was talking about that guy. You saw the the Sony uh, examples, I think, at NAB or somewhere else. And it's, you know, it's a thing. Oh, did I catch you? Oh, yeah. No, okay, yeah. So anyway, uh, next question. Next question from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. How does the NFL show create this shot of a reverse angle? We should be seeing cameras and crew, yet there appears to have a green screen effect. Good, Bill. Well, so don't always overthink things. I think in this particular case, since the people on the panel that's in the reverse shot were in the lower part, it's probably just a mat. Uh, they probably just literally took the background shot that they wanted and uh, wiped down over the top of things so that the panel was in the lower piece. There's other ways you can do it, but it doesn't always have to be something as complicated as a green screen, particularly in a reverse like that. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's, you can also get pretty creative with where cameras go. So it's, you know, they can be hidden in a lot of places as well. But I, yeah, I didn't, I, I'd have to see that moving to understand what was actually happening there. Right. It, it um, does just look like a simple map to me. Yeah, from the still, it's hard to tell. Uh, next question. Kent Kane from Charles, Charlotte, North Carolina asked, is Office Hours ready for a Q&A head-to-head challenge with AI? Uh, first challenger, Chat GPT. Anyone lucky enough to connect can play along. Yeah, go ahead, Javier. Uh, ChatGPT has been super interesting. I've been playing it with it a lot since last uh, week, and it's uh, very cool how the different things I throw to them, the things it comes back. Uh, but the two things what I think uh, that it won't do too, too well as uh, the panel can do. The first one is like uh, it doesn't know about actual like new things. Like uh, there, its knowledge stops somewhere in 2021. So that's the uh, first. Uh, Thing that it doesn't know new things at well and the second one is context a lot of the uh, answers of this panel come with a it depends and it depending on whether you're doing so uh but maybe an ai trained with the office hours videos would be super tough to beat <laughs> yeah, exactly good courtney i was thinking we could have a uh, back-end person that's in charge an ai wrangler and they would just take all the questions that are in and and post each one to chat gpt and then take the answers and post them into the panel chat and we could just have a panelist named uh you know gpt gpt <laughs> well and if we if, you know I, wanda I think, gpt or something I think we need more women on the panel anyway we could give a little I, a little avatar of a woman and just do text to speech and have her respond uh, let's see what wanda says you know and i think you could do text to speech i think you yeah. could do text to speech and you could also do um, phonetic uh, mouth movement, you know, from some of the, from Unreal has that built yeah, sure into it. Is. So someone, and give them kind of a random, you know, uh, thing and just, have, well, let's ask. 
have our artificial intelligence panelist. Here's the funny thing is if we get stuck, we just hand it to the, we hand it to GPT. You know, like, like uh, we don't know what the, that's what those, those handful of ones that can uh, stick us. We'll just go, let's ask GPT and, and just have it just answer it. Um, we're going to spend a whole hour uh, talking about it on Friday. Um, I've been playing with it a lot. Um, so we we changed that yesterday. So if you look at the email today, we're, we're going to spend a whole hour on on um, the, a, the chat GPT specifically. Uh, I've been playing with it a lot. I ask, I have a window open almost all the time when it's running. It's it's so popular that it keeps breaking. But I ask it all kinds of things just to see, you know, what it's really good at is succinct, succinctly answering a question that it's kind of good. Like it's not it's not the best answer ever. But it's succinct, and, and if you were going to talk to someone about something, it's, it's not that bad. So, um, so I find that to be useful. I have been threatening in my copious free time to make a YouTube channel where I just ask it for recipes and cook them, and then tell you how it turned out. Because I just did that. I I, I asked uh, ChatGPT for a rainy day soup recipe. It gave me one. And I made it. <laughs> I'm still eating it. It's still it's really good. And so I asked it for um, uh, a recipe for Osh soup, which is an Afghani uh, soup that I'm very fond of. And um, I, I'm going to make it on Sunday. <laughs> so we'll see how that turns out. But um, so I've, I've been getting getting it to give me recipes. I find that it doesn't very do very well at at imagining things. So I said, imagine a James Bond villain in 1865. And it's like, James Bond wouldn't, it was like James Bond wouldn't be in 1865. <laughs> and then it just says, but I'm sure they're very smart and they're very devious and ruthless. You know, like, like, it, like it, it's, it knows what it, what James Bond is, but it was like, it can't get outside of its own space. All right, next question. Yeah, it's also not very good with humor or snarkiness, but if you ask it, <laughs> ask it to make a joke, it, it's dad, dad joke humor. It's yeah, and well, my reader days may be numbered. Well, the the the, uh, the funny thing is, is that it'll do the craziest one. They're like, do you know, write a haiku about something, and it will write you this great. It's a great haiku. Like it's really good at haikus. Just in case you're wondering, like it's it's an exceptional haiku writer. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, it was mentioned that Simpty 2110 video would be a major consumer of network bandwidth. I haven't had any experience with it, but NDI seems more flexible and cloud-friendly, and it has reduced infrastructure costs. What can 2110 do that NDI can't? Yeah, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, 2110 is going to be fully uncompressed, whereas NDI is compressed. So you are getting, uh, even in 4K, you're only at about 220 megabits a second, um, about a one, 140 for HD at 1080p60. So uh, I think from what I've seen in some of the diagrams for the cloud uh, routing is that they are dumbing it down to uh, JPEG XS or JPEG 2000 and shooting it up compressed even into the cloud so they're not going you know full meal deal the other thing about those switches is they're they're very expensive and i'm pretty sure that they're just direct to direct you there's not a whole lot of uh way of routing like multicast where you can on ndi you can say i want this same stream to go to five different places and it, it just is able to do that super easy i'm pretty sure with simply 2110 that there's a another piece of the component to the routing that would allow you to uh, duplicate that signal so it's 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 not cheap. And uh, for those that need that kind of uh, look, then they'll pay the money to have fully uncompressed. But, and it's probably going to be, you know, 8K. There, at NEB, there was a million dollar truck that they were showing off and it was total 2110. It was interesting to see, um, but that's that's the future. That's where it's going. 
Yeah, the the uncompressed means that if you're doing color correct, live color correction, if you're doing green screen, if you're doing you know a lot of other things like that, you're, you're you know even just your records, you'll also see lower latency with twenty one ten. So, um, so it's it's it definitely has if you're looking at you know high end pro- professional production, um, it's 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 heavier, it's harder to work with, but it also is probably a little bit more stable than, than NDI. And, and we'll give you a record, a final record that's probably higher higher quality. Uh, but it, it's to do the same thing that you do with NDI is heavy. Next question. Guy Cochran from Seattle, USA. Does the Insta360 Link USB camera work with the Atomos Zeto Connect? I, I I saw the question and I was like, oh, how convenient. We were just talking about this. And, and <laughs> Guy pulled a Cochran. Uh, anyway, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Guy. Go ahead and receive your own Catches pass. the ball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Alex had asked me to try this out. And uh, I went ahead and ran to the shop last night and picked up an Insta360. We had a couple in stock. So I popped one open and let's toss to the behind the scenes camera. And let's see. So this is the Zato uh, Connect. It's a little five-inch screen. It can stream to YouTube uh, and Facebook. And uh, it's got a little monitor on the back. Let me actually push in so you guys can see what that looks like. Here's the back of the unit. Come on, focus. So right now I've got the Insta360 hooked into USB 1. You can add an HDMI camera because this is a switcher as well. So you can switch between uh, a USB camera and an HDMI via the on-screen display. And then there's power down the, below and it's running on an MP battery. And then there's an HDMI out, which we're feeding into a Blackmagic ATEM. So we're converting the little Insta360. So there it is. Cute little guy right there. And we're converting it to the Blackmagic, which it, it, it doesn't, the thing that it doesn't do is, uh, it'll still recognize the gestures and it still is a gimbal at the end of the day. So you could put this thing on, you could walk around a trade show like this. I mean, you could, you could be live streaming to YouTube with a gimbal. I was running around the house last night and it was amazing how steady the thing is, but you basically have to uh, tell it to turn off auto tracking, but it still kind of wants to. And you, from what I can tell, the exposure, you lock it in on the preset and then it, you're just stuck with that. Uh, or you could say auto expose. Uh, but as far as uh, framing, you can do the little L thing where you, you put your hand up and you, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you gesture an L and then you push up to zoom in and push out. Uh, so if, if I cut over to what the output looks like on the ATEM. So that's that's the output of this camera. Oh, it's blown out. But you can see that it's a gimbal. So that's the output of the Insta360. It works. It's so close. So yeah, I can- I was like, oh, it's so close. Because I would, yeah, I would definitely, in tight. I would definitely like, no, I, you just, if it was able to, con- if the app was able to control it remote, you know, through so, the device, I'd be super excited. So that's the next step is getting a hold of these manufacturers. So it's not only the Atomist that it works with. I tested it with the um, YOLO Live this morning and same thing. It'll, it'll work with the YOLO Live box. So it, it sees it and the camera wants to do its thing, which is just, you know now that's auto. got two usbs does that mean you can hook two usb cameras into it as well as I an hdmi i believe so I, um but i tried hooking the usb into the computer and it just didn't see it. so insta 360 in usb one and cam uh, computer into two and it, it the computer would so if we could it. just pass that connection through like that's the big thing is if we could somehow figure out a way to pass that 
control connection through would be useful. Yeah. And this is where we need the group, the power of the group to be like, Hey, Adamus, um, could you uh, make this work or YOLO yeah. live? One of the, one of the two should be able to get that to work because yeah. the app, of course, you know, I, I popped it open on my Mac and it works fine. Mm-hmm. But then the second that I disconnect it, it's, uh, it loses control. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. Can you tell the Zato to uh, put the same camera on both of the HDMI outs? No, there's it's one only HDMI one in HDMI in out, one HDMI in, one out. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. but uh, oh, does hold it, on. Let me, does it, does let me it show record? you one thing. This it does record as well. Mm-hmm. So this, this kind of started giving me some crazy ideas of what we could do for the future of trade shows. You know, you get your USB camera up front, get your wireless receiver, and then you get your hand grip, and then you put your Zato or your Yolo Live or whatever behind, and now you're streaming, and you got nice little portable <laughs> solutions. Did you did you ever see my the thing, the thing that I did with the iPhone when it first came out with video? I think it's it's somewhere floating around. If if you do a search, you'll see a video of me much younger with a lot less uh, gray hair uh, talking about the, the rig that you just built. It looks exact, very similar to the rig I built. I was like, the iPhone, eventually we're going to be shooting tons of video with our iPhone. This is when it, the very first one came out. Um, it was the day it was released. So anyways, it looked very similar. Now go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, well, JVC used to make their camcorders, used to have a Wi-Fi connection and uh, built-in streaming so you could stream directly from the camcorder. So it's yeah. something similar to that uh, uh, without any of the, uh, all the other gyrations you're going through. Plus it's recording openly as well. Hard part with JBC is the quality of their chips. Mm-hmm. They just never really figured that out. You know, I, I'd always look at it as always, the cameras are always convenient. They've always, they've thought of all the cool things that are somehow trying to overcome the pe- fact that the chips are bad. <laughs> so, so that's that, that. Like I was like, if you just invest in the chips, a lot of us would actually instead of all these little features. But the features are great. Every time you see JBC is on the front end of every extra feature that you'd ever want in a camera. It's just that they just miss the most important one. Um, yeah. Next question. Next question for Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. What are the pros and cons of using a one hundred fifty dollar B Link Mini PC with PlayOut B to replace a HyperDeck for playback? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I don't know the cons. Uh, the pros are pretty good. They're cheap. They're you know you can get uh, besides B-Link. You know this is the uh, Melee computer. It's got you know all your inputs, your gazintas, gazoutsas. It has a separate uh, Wi-Fi connection, and it has uh, Ethernet. How do you spell Melee? M E L E. M E L E. Okay. M E L E. Melee. 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 And it has uh, you know. HDMI out, and you can put the PlayOut B on this. It runs full version of Windows 11 or 10. Uh, and his ver- the latest version of PlayOut B that has the markers and everything in it works really well in Windows 11. So uh, you could stick it in there, and uh, these are only about 200 to $250 for the little ones, and the- they have some that are even cheaper that have less memory or uh, you know less, less storage. But, you know, you can get by with what, what comes in storage. Plus, they have a micro SD card, so you can add a terabyte and a micro SD for extra storage. Yeah, I think there's a lot of advantages to PlayOut B. Um, it's convenient. You can, it's a lot, lot less expensive. I think that there's, there's a lot there that, to, to use. I think that um, a couple things that, that the HyperDeck gives you, obviously, is um, the micro gives you key fill out. So you, you, can, you can do, I don't know the... Do the new full size ones do key fill out? I'm not sure if they do or not, but the, I know that the, the the minis do key, key fill out, so that's useful. Um, also, a ten bit, so the ten bit play out is something that's important on my end. So, um, so those are those are things that we can't quite do with the play out B yet, but we we'll keep on we'll keep on dreaming. <laughs> Next question from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. 
At the Felix website, the matrix color light is shown displaying a blue, yellow, red, and green light at the same time. Would ever be used this way, or is this only done to show its capabilities? Go ahead, Bill. I think it's really done to show its capabilities. Uh, Fresnel lenses are really fascinating things. They've been around for a long time. The, the brilliant lighting designers figured it out. And it is a way to take a focused beam of light, project it a long distance, but still have it be relatively soft when it gets there, as opposed to a point source that's just magnified and sent out as a beam. So, um, boy, I would have been sunk with on my all on stage work if we hadn't had Fresnel lenses able to project something onto a stage part and not have it be harsh and make people look worse than they are. So it's a great technology. I think they're showing you that there's four uh, Fresnel lenses on the front of that device, which means you'll get a soft output, even if the emitters behind those are point sources. Yeah, I'm curious as, yeah, it's R, yeah, RGB plus, uh, it's RGB white. So it's just saying that it can do, it has, I think, yeah, I think as Bill said, it's, it's representing that it can do RGB, which will give you most of the colors. But you, it, one thing that an RGB only light has a trouble with is getting to actual white. <laughs> so, so having uh, white pixels in there uh, makes it uh, able to do that more effectively. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada. What is a debayer and how does it work? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you got to have the picnic baskets locked to keep the bears. No, the, uh, <laughs> this time of year, they get kind of hungry. The bear filter in a, uh, in a, in a chip based camera, uh, it looks like is a checkerboard. So what they do is the image sensor has this, uh, arrangement, checkerboard arrangement. You'll notice there are twice as many greens as there are reds and blues because it goes blue, green, blue, green, blue, green, and then, Green, red, green, red, green, red. And the debearing filter takes this matrix of red, green, and blue pixel values and uh, interpolates them because uh, you have it doesn't have to interpolate the green because there are twice as many uh, green in this bear pattern. There are different patterns as well, which we won't get into right now. But um, uh, let's see if this other image shows you. So what it does is it uh, the debearing program uh, interpolates the red pixels by looking at the values of all the nearest neighbors uh, around it and comes up with an individual number for the uh, areas where there aren't red filters to give you a full resolution red and a full resolution blue and green. It does not uh, do pixel averaging on. It just takes the values that come in. So that's my explanation of debearing. It's matrix math and it's all done inside your camera by a very smart chip. Yeah, and and it is uh, what well, the funny thing about all images that come out of CMOS. CMOS is using the bear pattern, whereas the old CCDs used to just be red, green, and blue CCD for each one of those, which were technically sharper. Um, so the uh, because the problem is is that if you actually look at a CMOS chip unfiltered, it will always look a little soft because all those little pixels were sitting next to each other. The only um, the only chip that didn't didn't do that for a long time was the Foveon chip. Um, so the Foveon chip would um, actually um, uh, stack them, you know, so that all those pixels are on there, but it has some low light issues. Um, but it is, and it was smaller. They'd say, well, it, it, it was very hard for, I think it was, was it Sigma that, that made cameras that way? Or Sigma or Fuji or someone that, did, that, that you know, licensed the Foveon chip. Um, and it, it, would, it would be technically sharper, um, but, but a smaller chip. And so if they made it the same resolution and 
uh, and um, stacked. I think it'd be really interesting. A lot of us were really interested in it, but we couldn't get over the, a camera that we don't <laughs> doesn't fit to everything else we do. Um, so that, you know, that's always the, the the hard part there. The um, yeah, so you have to sharpen everything with it with the you know with that um, debearing. So that's that's usually the kind of the challenges. It is compu- We're all we've been dealing with computational photography for a while now. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas, with a question. Clevger yesterday released Tomophon plugin. Tomophon is a new synth with the capability to process very large volumes of waves extracted from real audio. What would be the use case for this? Making music. That's that's what I'm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I, I uh, this is, and I guess it's Clevger. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, it looks cool. Yeah, we should bring him on. Like let's, let's put them on the list of things that we should uh, things second hours. Uh, it looks it looks like well, we don't know enough about it without them coming on. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asked in an article about NFL Films headquarters. They mentioned having ninety VDI thin client editing workstations accessible on the network. Outside of hosted services like Shadow, what tools can make network desktops responsive enough for production? Well, the question is where it's networking to. A lot of times, these thin clients aren't networking out of the building, <laughs> you know, so they're, you know, they're they're grabbing stuff and they're not 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 going to AWS. They're going to another part of the building, which makes them very uh, responsive. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the way NFL Films works out in Mount Laurel is everywhere uh, that there's a game going on and they have a crew shooting, uh, they have these uh, backpacks that are on the back of their uh, Amira cameras. And uh, when they're done, they walk over to a, a, a device that sucks all the data off that and sends it over to Mount Laurel or maybe uh, to their facilities in Jersey. I think it's Englewood. And um, that is where the editing is done. It's not done on the cloud. It's done in a studio because they have a massive amount of data coming in constantly all the time. They don't have time to transfer it back and forth. Yeah. Next question. Brett. Balo from uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. I live just north of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, home of the famous EAA Air Show mentioned last week. Where is the best place on Discord to get the ball rolling for a discussion on covering this or other events that aren't already listed? CES, NAB? Oh, man. Well, so the question that I have for you, Brett, is if you're, if you're close to Oshkosh, do you have a big backyard and can we put tents on it so we can all come? I've done this. We've done this for covering events before. We, we just get a whole bunch of tents and we throw them all in the backyard. We we'll, Oftentimes we've done this with, we did this once. I, 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 we don't do it all the time. We uh, were covering the, um, we went to Bend, Oregon to cover the eclipse and we just rented a huge farmhouse with a big yard and we put like nine tents in it so we have our whole crew because there was no way to get anything at the last minute there because everyone knew that Ben was a good place to watch the eclipse. And so um, so if you've got a big yard, let us know. <laughs> or if you, so I'm, I am 100% behind uh, covering Oshkosh. So, so let's, uh, let's figure out a way that we can, um, that, you know, again, it's, it's really, can we gather enough people that are interested in it? But talk to Chad and Josh about um, uh, w- putting something up there and let's see if we can't aggregate enough people to, and I, again, I think if five or six people want to go to Oshkosh and cover it, I, it's worth doing. Um, it's Oshkosh, for those of you listening, is... Uh, a lot of planes, <laughs> like a lot of planes uh, flying. And so uh, it'd be great if we could find some space there. But even if we can't, um, I think it'd be a great experiment for us because it's definitely geek uh, adjacent, you know, to to what we do. A lot of people who like to do uh, video like planes. <laughs> like So I'm hoping to go down in January down to, down to Tucson to do 
to just walk through the Pima Air Museum. So stay tuned for that as well. We might try to get that done. So that'll be a little preview to Oshkosh. Uh, next question. Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. A lot of faculty I work with think that the onboard MacBook mic and camera is a good setup. How can we gently break it to them that it's less than the best ever and it behooves them to invest in something better in the time of home broadcasting? Go ahead, Javier. I think it's hard for people, like regular people, to know if their sound or their camera looks bad. But we are very good at, com our brain are great at comparing things. So if you get them into a Zoom session, like all of them, and some, one of you, or maybe you, can put a good camera, good audio, good video, good lighting, everything, they're going to start noticing that you sound different, like, from all, all all of them and the second part would be recording that session and playing it back to them because it's like when someone re uh, hears their their voice recorded for the same first time that they're like do i do i sound like that do i really speak like that uh when you hear it without doing it you, you notice more things so if you if they don't get it during the session when you point to them uh after the recording they're gonna see like oh i, I don't look that great i don't sound as great so showing it them in comparison to something else and try to do it uh like offline and not when they're doing it so, you know you you record it and then you play it for them and you can point things that that's easier that's the only way i found it to do it good courtney just have them watch the demo video for the insta 360 look i made a little case um because this little device which can sit on top of their macbook which they paid a thousand dollars too much for anyway uh for 350 dollars and this, coupled with a wireless setup like the DJI, you know, wireless microphones, uh, can get them a full, you know, network quality image in comparison to what they've been using uh, to send their stuff out to their students. And the fact that this little gimbal device can follow you around, can track your faces, can detect a whiteboard if you want to put stuff on a board and write it, or can tilt down and you know let you show something uh, on your desk to to the students as well without uh, and the built-in cameras to any of the laptops can't do any of that stuff. So just have them watch the Insta 360 demo that shows the whiteboard and the desktop view and uh, and the uh, DJI microphone to improve the quality of the sound as they walk around the room. Good, Bill. Yeah, I think this is going to be a tough sell forever because a lot of people think it's clear. People can hear me. I'm done. And everybody here is completely 180 degrees against that idea because we understand that in the modern world of person-to-person -person communication, your Zoom presence is the equivalent of how you dress in for a lecture or something like that, uh, how you present yourself to the world. And people have to make that flip in their minds that it makes a difference. You wouldn't go in T-shirts and shorts to present to your colleagues yet you're happy to have a laptop camera looking up and counting your nose hairs because you took no time to look at the geometry of your shot or anything else. And I, I don't know how you get people to accept that other than to just keep preaching about it and hope you can make the case over the course of time. Yeah, I, 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 I tend not to preach about it very much. I mean, here I do. <laughs> we talk about it a lot here, but in, in, a, in day to day, uh, I do a lot of what was um, suggested earlier, just be better in your own setup. And the more your setup is better than everybody else's, the more they notice uh, that, that it's there. There's a lot of times when you're talking about that, you have, you know, you kind of have, there's you here, and then there's people that might be interested, people that, you know, eh, don't really care, and people that are against it. 
right out here. The mistake people make is they start they start paying attention to the people out here. They don't matter like to you, like just just so you know, like people who are against what you're doing, just ignore them. You know, um, so uh, you, you know when you're doing doing this kind of operation, this is something I do a lot. <laughs> so I don't want to pay attention to these people because what I do is I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm excited about it. These people are the first people. The people that are that are going to be interested in what you're doing are going to be the first people to do it. And then you just support them. You give them tons of input. You tell them how to do it. If you can, you loan them a mic or loan them a camera. Let them see what that looks like. So you find the people that are close to where, what you're trying to do and you just make them successful. What that'll do is that'll bleed into the people that are we're kind of in the middle. Now there's a bunch of people that are doing it and it starts to become a little bit of a peer pressure that, you know, if there if if one person shows up looking better than everyone else, it's one thing. If two or three start showing up at meetings looking better than everyone else, there's a certain group of people. There's the curmudgeons out here and they're going to be like, ah, I'm like, rah, rah, rah. you know, um, but what you, you don't care about them. You, you All you care about are the people that are in the middle here. Now, this last little piece, what will happen is either they will finally realize that this is a pretty good deal or no one will listen to them during the show, during the meetings. Like like literally people will just start ignoring them and they and they you know and eventually they're either you know they're either going to be in the bus or under the bus. You know and the reason for that is that I can tell you I've been in meetings like this if four people have really good setups the one person that doesn't no one really pays attention to them. Like you know and and you know like that it's just hard for the, for you to listen to them talk. You know and people think well it should be all about the content. It's never all about the content. <laughs> it's never, ever. You know, how you look, what you drive, what you dress like, all those things impact people, whether whether you like it or not. You know, and so the thing is, it's never about that. And so having, you know, up, upscaling first yourself, then people around you, then the people around them, the people on the outer edge that don't want to do it, again, they'll just, they get to enjoy being at the meeting, but they will be looked down on all the time because, because it, it when you have bad cameras, especially compared to other people, when you have bad cameras and bad audio, people just don't take you seriously. It's, it's, I strongly believe this is why we've lost a lot of our interest in the press and a lot of our interest in, in government is because they kept on showing up with bad cameras and bad audio. You know, for two years, we got to watch them with bad cameras and bad audio, and it's just hard to believe them, you know, when they look like that. And so that's, you know, so, but just worry about the people that are adjacent <laughs> just make make you but you the key is make them successful take the time out to to help them get them through the troubles that they'll have they'll have they can't figure out this camera interface they can't figure out that audio interface they can't figure out whatever it is help the people around you that are remotely interested be excited and you know you just you know, it, it gets infectious so, but don't worry about the people on the outer edge they'll either figure it out or they won't be won't be a part of the conversation anyway um, next question all right, I've got a question. Who are the guys in a blue vest running up and down the sidelines with cameras at NFL games? Good, Mitchell. I kind of tossed it to myself here, I guess. Um, I found this out just uh, last night. Uh, there's a color code system for the people to vest on. Uh, the blue vest folks carrying an Amira camera that's shooting uh, 1080p, but occasionally does 4K, um, are the people working at NFL Films. And what they do is at the end of the uh, uh, the broadcast, when they're shooting the sideline stuff and the uh, the field level uh, famous NFL shots, uh, they, as I said earlier, they put it into a, a massive server that sucks it in and shoots it out to their uh, their major headquarters. The strange thing about this is that even though they are shooting 1080 um, uh, p, um, 
uh, Netflix, or I think it's Netflix, has a couple of NFL shows uh, that are in 4K. So all the studio segments are in 4K, but the, um, uh, the, the location shots are all done at 1080i or 1080p, depending on what it is. So until they uh, upgrade it, I was told that the system that uh, gets that information off the cameras uh, does not do 4K just yet. Go ahead, Courtney. And remember, historically, NFL films used to shoot everything in 16 millimeter. And they used to be on the sidelines with 16 millimeter. And in fact, they used to process it like two doors, two doors down from my office down in Larchmont. NFL films had their processing plant there. So, uh, and for years uh, after everyone had gone to, you know, even uh, when they were going to high def video, they were still shooting in 16 millimeter uh, because they liked the portability of it and the, and the look of it. Good, Bill. Single greatest sports shot I ever saw was one of those 16 millimeter camera guys. Uh, quarterback fell back to throw a pass. He followed the ball out of the arm, zoomed in to the ball to get the ball in the full frame, followed it down, and pulled out just in time to see the catch. I can't uh, conceive uh, of funny. doing that. I was going to say that I tried to do that. Th- that shot really inspired me. And I and I went to a, I was in college, and I went to a. Uh, I mean, I saw it on something that was older than that, but I, I saw it then, and I. I went and tried to do that with a video camera and I was just like, okay, that's impossible. Like, I don't even know how someone would do that. Like it was, I tried it all, like, literally I sat on one sideline and tried to get that shot or uh, anything near it for an entire game and got nothing. <laughs> like, cause it's one it thing to catch it from the side, but coming, when it's coming at you like this, it's there, there's so much going on. It was just all like over and it was catch, you know, it was, I was like, uh, turns out you need to practice more than one game. Um, next question. <laughs> Next question here for Douglas Carmichael. Alex, you mentioned in jest an AI panelist with UE created mouth movements. If we wanted to run UE in cloud for a special show, wouldn't shadows idle timer uh, disconnection shutdown if no input for a set time be an issue? No idea. I haven't used it enough to know. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 we could use lots of things. We would probably test it for a while and see if it worked. Next question. Michael Smith in Silverado, California. Has any of the panelists checked out Draw Things iOS app? On phone AI art, no internet needed. Mm, draw Things. I haven't seen it yet. So we'll have to, we'll have to check it out. The Draw Things iOS app. Um, I'm, is, that a, is that a stable diffusion build? Um, I don't know if it is or not. So that'll be interesting to see. Next question. Douglas Carmichael. Guy, I'm impressed by the Atomos Zato Connect. Are there any other standalone devices that can connect USB cameras to HDMI? Code Guy. Yeah, the other one that I spoke of was the yellow box, and one that I have here uh, to test is the uh, new InStream. This is the one that will stream to TikTok, um, Instagram. Le- legally, it'll stream there. Uh, so you can see right now I've got the Insta360 Link USB um, A into the device. Um, you can also <laughs> open up Zoom on this thing, which is kind of crazy. I opened up a Zoom meeting earlier, but yeah, you can see the camera is uh, is working right there, and it's plugged in, and that's one solution. So this one's not and cheap, that? and it does do vertical video. This is nine by sixteen. You can see it's basically an Android device. What's this the, is the uh, Yolo box, and you can see it's got Ethernet, so you can do Ethernet, Wi-Fi, and a SIM card inside this thing, and it's but got is it, HDMI. Which Yolo box? This is the InStream. This oh, is in-stream. the new one. Yeah, this. Uh, they have the Pro. They have the the not Pro. 
Um, some people are happy with these things. I, I'm not in love with it. Uh, with the original one, we streamed at our church and it, it was fine. But anytime you put some load on it, if you just had like a basic stream, it was fine. But when you start putting load on it, it got funky. And so when you say load, you mean a lot of movement? A lot of cameras, uh, graphics, all the stuff that they, that they promise, you know, it's like it, I think that they bit off more than they can chew when, with their marketing. So, at the so if you, if you're just going to pump a video signal in, it works great. If you're going to, um, use the tools the that it put scorn. in there. Well, it's gotten better over the two years. Uh, so I got to give them a break because they, they've grown up a lot. So there's a lot of happy users now, but at the beginning we were, uh, there was a lot of frustration. And this is a thousand dollars. Is that right? I believe so. thousand dollars. Yeah, and it'll run and, for three three hours, and you can see in the encoding settings, you got constant bit rate, uh, constant quality VBR. You can pump up the bit rate, and again, this one has the physical um, uh, Ethernet, so you can plug Ethernet directly in it. It'll do the same thing that we we're talking about with the uh, USB conversion to convert to um, HDMI. So you got an HDMI uh, out here as well, and then that one's USB C for power. If you give it a sixteen by nine, does it um, does it just center crop? Um, right now it's rotating. Well, is it I can't rotate only? this camera sideways. Yeah, this one's portrait only. I can't rotate this thing side. This, this camera wants to ride itself because it's it does have it doesn't a have portrait mode. I think. Yeah, I'm just curious what it does when it. Do you have to turn the camera sideways to it? You do. For it to, yes. Yes. Right. Turn the camera sideways. Got it. Interesting. Cool. Um, Next question. Guy, don't go anywhere. Tony Mobley from Newton, Georgia has a question for you. What iPad is Guy using in his demo in the pre-show? Please share use case for cameras and software. I think that might be the Wacom tablet. Um, He was talking about, this is the first generation iPad, and I'm running the Red Komodo app, so you can see that I can control focus, I can control iris, I can control shutter. There's all kinds of controls for uh, color and LUTs and film. Uh, It's it's crazy. You could control every menu, essentially. Um, It's a crazy app. So that's how I'm using it. It's the original 12.9 iPad. And I finally found a good use for it. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, how do you get evaluation products to review on YouTube? Like the big YouTubers, like Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. It's all reputation and your ability to influence. If you have enough followers, you will get fed products like that. I used to write for a magazine. And so because what I wrote in the magazine reached a bigger audience, people would send me products all the time to do that. And that's just part of the, the whole thing. And now, of course, that's gotten away from organizations and down to individual influencers who have built enough uh, online and social savvy to know that they can leverage that audience into product placements. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, I've been getting a lot of free stuff for a long time. <laughs> you just have to, you just have, if you're doing it for a long time, the big thing is, is that you have to, usually you have to prime the pump by buying a lot of things and reviewing them. And then if you show that you have a good review and you start building up following and people look at it and go, Oh, I would love my product to be there. People end up start, you know, offering, offering stuff. Go ahead, guy. Yeah. You got to, you got to just do a good job of putting out the the content to to viewers. Uh, we used a service called Grapevine, so I used to really push these uh, these lights that we had, and uh, we used Grapevine, and we would look at uh, the international reach that people had. So you can see their Twitter, you can see their YouTube, and it all would just boil it down, and then it would give them a score. And so we would we would sort and sift and see, you know, watch all their content. So we had a team that would just sit there and 
we'd parse it, and then we would send out, we would reach out, direct message and reach out and then offer, you know, a fee to somebody to uh, do a video on a light. And then that's the sponsorship and you have to actually tag your video. But that's how you get free stuff is um, do a good job and then get the get the numbers up. And ideally, somebody on the team finds you and uh, reaches out to you or trade shows are the other way. If you're talking to somebody uh, at a booth and you can show them that you do a good job and uh, they sometimes it's a trade, you know, it's uh, let's say it's a thousand dollar item and you sit, your production is worth more than a thousand dollars. Then it's a good deal for them because they don't. To them, the cost on to build it to them is probably five hundred bucks, and so getting a thousand dollar video that took you two or three days to make is a good deal. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you can just show uh, the product manufacturer that you have enough subscribers, that's why every YouTube video of all those uh, people that do reviews or smash that that bell and subscribe because that gets their numbers up. That allows them to take those numbers to the individual manufacturers and say, "Look, I've got a million viewers out here weekly." However, it can become a bit of a uh, horse collar around your neck because once you start doing it, you have to keep doing it. You have to keep a regular schedule to keep those subscribers up and uh, to keep them uh, to keep generating reviews of all the stuff. And it can stack up on you and it can become quite a burden if you're not used to handling that much stuff. Yeah, I mean, and the main thing I would recommend is definitely um, I, you know, because I'm on Mac break, I, we review stuff, but I don't review things. I recommend things. <laughs> so, and, and I, I'm, I used to review things. I don't like reviewing them because I found that I got locked up because I'd be like, well, I don't know if that's not, I don't know if that's really the right thing. I don't know if this is the right thing. So when I do things on Mac, it's why Mac break has tip has picks, not reviews is because I didn't want to review things. I wanted to pick things. Say, hey, I really like this. Then I can just be unabashedly, I really like this. This is really good. This is what I'm looking at. This is what, you know, and this is why I think that the review thing, and I can say, oh, well, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do this, but I really still like it and I recommend it. But I, I went to kind of recommending things, you know, and when I talk to uh, anybody that wants to send me something or I want to borrow something to, to, to look at, I tell them, here's the deal. I'm going to look at your product. If I don't like it, I'm just not going to talk about it. <laughs> like I'll send it, I'll send you back the product. You know, like if I, you know, if I like it, I'm going to recommend it. If I don't like it, I'm not. And they love that actually. <laughs> like, like, like they're like, they don't want the reviews. They want people to talk, say, they'd rather you say nothing than to, than to talk bad about it. And, and, and the, and the function, the reason I did that over 20 years is that, is that I just really realized I don't make, it doesn't work for me, but it doesn't mean it doesn't work for anybody. And I, and I, I kind of felt, I just couldn't, I, I had a hard time doing the reviews that way. Um, and so I just found that recommending things was, was a better solution or just talking about how something works, but not getting into the, this doesn't work, um, in the videos. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. I'd like to speak to my friends at Sony for a second and tell them, please send an FR7 to Alex. We all want one. We all want one. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I, I, I've already asked for that. Anyway, so, um, uh, next question. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. If you wanted to install 10 gigabit ethernet at home, what brand and model of managed switch would you would the panel recommend? Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, it's, it's a tough call because it depends on what you're doing and how many users that you need to actually be connected at the full 10 gig. So the switch that I'm using is a Netgear AV4250 and I'm using 10 gig via these fiber um, little adapters. So they, they go in and then you can get a 10 gig card, which for a PC, a PCIe card is is really cheap. But the second that you start going over to the Mac line and you want to get a Sonnet one, it's like 350 bucks. So how many need to be connected at the full? So uh, I have another uh, QNAP adapter that's USB-C to five gigabit. And that one's 
full so the two are connected these two machines are connected through the switch so the switch has two up links and you can uh share data super fast but then the rest of the users uh will be at just the uh the uh, regular one gigabit so you just got to ask yourself do i really want to go full in so uh, qnap is is one there's a guy named lon lon steadman who has a nice video on amazon that goes through him hooking up some of these cheap five port ones that are a pretty good deal so it just can't again it depends on do you really need 10 gig everywhere because it gets expensive i mean 350 400 bucks a whack for USB-C to or thunderbolt 3 to 10 gig it's it's expensive so unless you really need that horsepower i wouldn't be investing in in a big switch to connect a bunch of users that just only need one gigabit anyway next question from wayne ma in park city utah i'm hearing impaired and usually use over-to-ear headphones with bluetooth with my apple tv 4k problem is with the headphones active the audio to my speakers are cut off so nobody else can hear the audio do you have a solution for this go ahead courtney don't use Apple TV. Use a different app. In a, like a, my Samsung TV has uh, the same a similar problem. It has Bluetooth built into it, and it has apps built into it because it's a smart TV with Tizen built in. So I can take streaming coming into the TV, and it has a Bluetooth connection. So uh, I have a friend who connects with his Bluetooth headphones because he's uh, like as well hard of hearing. Uh, but it does not mute the optical output of the TV. So I take the optical output of the TV uh, or toss link into the sound bar. And so it's on a separate, uh, it's separate from anything else. So it, it uh, even though you're listening on headphones, you can still send the output over the optical link to a sound bar or some other uh, audio device like an ABS to uh, broadcast the audio for your, for your sound. But I don't think the app, since the Apple... I'm not sure if that Apple TV, when you connect to Bluetooth to the Apple TV, if it mutes the output over the HDMI, then you're stuck. So you might have to ditch the Apple TV and go to some other streaming device if you need to hear both. Uh, yeah, so it does, and it's it's kind of considered a feature uh, that it turns everything else off automatically. The the re my family is a heavy use of the headphones because um, the someone wants to watch something, everybody else is doing something else, and the and our sound system kind of fills the house so so if someone turns it on you can't really do a lot of other things and so so the um and so the so the head that there's a pair of headphones that everybody puts on if they're going to listen watch something that is obscure to them um and so uh so they so the headphone that's what the way the Apple, i don't think apple, the apple tv will do it any other way if you pass that hdmi signal through anything that has a headphone output um, that can be an AV, an, an audio video receiver. It can be um, a variety of other little devices. As long as it's got an HDMI out, you can get that. You, you then you just need an adapter to the HDMI, you know, Bluetooth adapter to, you know, from a, uh, from a, you know, an eighth inch jack or quarter inch jack, and you'll be able to listen to it at that point. And then just it just goes through, puts it in there, so you don't have to give up on your Apple TV because it is the best. <laughs> I have them all, but the interfaces. So, uh, by the way, this is for Josh. We need to do a whole second hour. I've been really thinking about this, about interfaces, <laughs> like, you know, and why they're important, um, because it's not something that most people seem to understand. Um, and uh, even just within the Apple app, going to other, we were just, there was a long discussion in my family about how bad the Amazon uh, Prime uh, interfaces. And, um, and and so the, it just frustrates you, you know, and there's lots of silly things that people do that, that, that um, and on most of the other platforms, the interface is pretty, when you're used to an Apple platform, it's pretty, it's like, oh, you didn't think about like 80 things <laughs> that would make this easier. Um, next question. 
Douglas Carmichael asks, how does the Atomos Shogun Connect differ from the Zato Connect? Can the Shogun Connect act as a USB HDMI gateway as well? Do you know, Guy? I don't know enough about the Shogun. The, I don't know enough about the Connect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that one I haven't had a chance to play with. It's sitting on the shelf. I, there, mm-hmm. They limit me as to how much I can walk in there and grab. But <laughs> it's like, do you want this one or this one? It's like, you're grabbing all this stuff. But yeah, I saw, I, I saw that the uh, Frame.io ca- camera to cloud will work with the uh, Shogun Connect. And that's one of the bigger things that it does. Um, and then it's a bigger screen physically. And the price difference is twice the the cost as far as does it do that same connection i'll have to uh, yeah, look at the specs and see I, I don't think it does um i think that it's it's big value is, is that you've got a great 2000 nit screen um that uh that will can you know upload you know from from it and i think that's the big um i think that's the big thing there is these screens that can also you know be uploading to uh, camera to cloud which is it's pretty nifty um next question Final question for the hour, coming from Douglas Carmichael. Marketing materials for the Red Komodo talk about easier VFX camera tracking match move because of no rolling shutter artifacts. Blender has VFX features. How hard are VFX concepts to learn versus 3D modeling? They're just different. (laughs) So I've done a lot of 3D modeling, done a lot of VFX. Uh, They all have their own challenges. I think you can probably do simple VFX shots easier than it is to model. But modeling is kind of a superpower, like just being able to build models um, from things and and to do that. I, you know, I would highly recommend people get caught up in like, oh, I can't model. And I have to admit, I'm not a great modeler anymore, because, mostly because the app that I use, Form Z, doesn't really work on the Mac anymore. <laughs> like it just doesn't, like it's the one that I spent thousands and thousands of hours on. But I still can hold my own in, in cinema and do, do some basic modeling. Um, but it's great to be able to model. Like I just, I would highly recommend. It's it's one of those things that I, the bigger the bigger conversation at some point is. It's great to be able to make things. Like I think a lot of times in our in our world right now, we have lots of things that do things for us, and we'll get into this discussion on Friday about AI. But you know, we've gotten a lot of things that things just are available, and then we can just be and watch TV and talk about things and everything else. But there's something satisfying satisfying about being able to make things that I think people lose out on. And especially with 3D modeling, it's not just VFX that you can do. You can do 3D printing, you can do, you know, like I'm figuring out how to how to do this, um, my little ATEM and customization and everything else. If I didn't know how to do any modeling, I would be in big trouble. <laughs> you know, like I wouldn't be able, I just, oh, I just look at it and go, well, I won't be able to do it. I won't be able to create anything that that isn't provided by, on Thingiverse, you know, if if I think of something new, I can't do it, and so so I think that there's a real there's incredible value to being able to make things, and I and I, I would highly recommend, um, you know, taking advantage of that value. And 3D modeling is definitely one of those key ones. And even if you're not interested in VFX, just being able to make things to print them is worth it. You know, my son, I got him into 3D printing, and now he's like he builds all these little things, and and I think that's great. Now, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I've done a lot with VFX and After Effects, and um, I've done as much as I can in that area. I really think the new territory is, for me anyhow, is getting into Cinema 4D and 3D modeling and learning that because I just dabble in it, and it's not enough. You got to be all over it now. And the good news is, is that if you're using Blender, there are like or Cinema 4D, but especially Blender, there's like a million, um, a million videos online about how to model. So it's not. 
it's not like when we started, we were just like, there was the manual and people that you knew. There was, when we learned Form Z, um, there was three pages of, uh, three pages of graph paper explaining how to do um, lofting specifically and exactly all the rules to doing great lofting that Coley Wirtz had written down from some design um, <laughs> class. And we all had pictures of it. <laughs> that thing and we all did it the same way and it was all this like it was just a really funny thing that um and you know it's just yeah so so it is uh it's it's highly you know the the amount of support is amazing right now um i think that again i i'm i'm probably not going to learn blender anytime soon just because i'm i'm i know cinema better um but uh maybe we'll maybe we'll do it as a group but i think we'll do cinema and maybe we'll do blenders and blender sessions just to play with it i, I don't know enough about it um, i open it up and i get angry so because if you're used to cinema you just you open it up and you're like ah oh. um but uh the new interface with cinema has me confused so <laughs> so, I, so i have to relearn everything anyway so um so we'll, we'll we'll play with that we'll stay tuned for that all right okay we are now changing subjects and talking about HDR. And this is really a Q and A. Um, I'm going to do a, a, a couple, talk about a couple terms, talk about a couple things to think about, um, and then uh, open up to Q and A. If you don't ask questions, this is going to be a really short show. <laughs> I'm just letting you know. The goal here is to um, for us to start to talk about um, HDR and start to understand it. I'm not going to say that I'm an expert. I just want to start talking about some of the terms that we want to look at and get us ready to start thinking about bringing some ex people that I consider experts, uh, or we, some of us consider experts, um, in to talk about more of the finer details of HDR. And so, so we're going, you know, and so we're gonna start covering that, um, and hopefully, and I'll probably answer some of the questions in my opened, in my first piece here, but, but we're gonna, um, but it's just something for us to start thinking about, so ask questions as you see me talk about it. So there's a couple terms that are important to understand as we start to get into it. Of course, high dynamic range. HDR is high dynamic range, um, and SDR is standard dynamic range. So these are the two, the two things that we talk about the most. Standard dynamic range is almost everything. <laughs> like almost everything that you see lives in standard dynamic range. And a handful of things, most of the new Apple products um, and uh, a lot of most of the new TVs you buy are in high dynamic range. But when we say high dynamic range, that really means a lot of different things to a lot of people. I'm not sure exactly what the definition of high dynamic range is. I think it's like 400 nits or 600 nits. I mean, you're a lot of times standard dynamic range is if you think about it, it's, it's, um, give me one second here. Uh, I just, there is a thing that I have to do every once in a while. It's going to take me just a second here because otherwise it's going to drive me crazy. Um, let me do this. My, my little app that I used for this sometimes shows the cursor and I just have to, I have to oftentimes just uh, restart it a little bit. Anyway, so sorry about that, um, but it will, I meant to do that while we were, uh, while we were in the other section. There we go. All right. So, at least I've got good at fixing it. That's the key to life, you know, it's not being able to do things well, it's being able to fix them. <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, so if you think about, you know, generally your standard dynamic range is, you know, it's 100 nits, um, nits are the value, values of brightness. Um, a, I believe the threshold for what we call HDR, well, I mean, technically it's over 100 nits, but a lot of even um, SDR, uh, devices will go up to about 250 nits, somewhere in that in that range. 
But HDR, I believe, and again, you talk to someone, talk to a bunch of different people and you'll get a bunch of different answers. But I think it's 400 to 600 nits is kind of the beginning of what we start calling high dynamic range. Uh, most of us think of a high dynamic range at about a thousand nits. Like if it's, I, I don't really start paying attention to a monitor. Like if someone says it's high dynamic range, I don't really care until it gets to a thousand nits. Um, and then um, the brightest monitor I've ever seen is a four thousand nits, and there's actually warnings on it. This is the Pulsar. There's actually um, there's actually warnings on it not to watch it for too long. <laughs> Like, like, don't look at, like, look at this for reference. Don't look at this for long because we'll burn your eyes out. And so, so the, um, it's, it starts getting close to it. And then the highest value is 10, uh, 10,000 nits, which, um, is a theoretical value. I have heard rumors that there is monitors that, that can do it. Uh, I have never seen one and I imagine you probably shouldn't look at it for very long. So, um, so anyway, so this is the range that we think about there. Most of our, like, a, I think the Apple displays can get into the 1600, um, I think, and, and a lot of times these are peaks as opposed to, like, I can just play a whole screen of that. Um, and and so the, the, the thing is, is that, the, so this is the range that we kind of deal with. Um, and most of the form, most of the versions of this that we can look at are going to f be able to get into up to four or 5,000 nits. I mean, technically HLG, even though we never see it do that, can get to 5,000 nits. Um, and so, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Now, the, the big thing is how do we get there and how do we describe that? And so um, the, the first thing that we think about is the electrical optical transfer function or EOTF. So there's the EOTF. This is the, I mean, I'm going to really simplify this. This is the gamma curve. <laughs> This is how, you know, when, when the, um, so basically this is when I get an electrical impulse of an image, how am I going to push it out the other side? So everything's got an EOTF. Um, and, uh, but, but if figuring that out, um, that curve is, is a big piece of it. Um, now what happens is, is that there, there's different priorities for different things. So you have, uh, there are a couple, there's a lot of them. Um, I will get to, um, a couple of them. So you have, uh, first you have the, the color spaces. This is not the same as a, you know, it's not the same as HDR, but the color spaces and the two major ones that we pay a lot of attention to are rec 709. And then we also have rec 2020, um, rec 709 is what most of us think of as video standard definition or standard dynamic range video, um, here and Rec 2020 is a much larger box. <laughs> so all the things that we talk about, whether it's a PQ curve or other curve, all the, all the other HDR signals sit inside of the Rec 2020 box, but it can describe a lot of different things. It's just a much larger box of colors to work with than Rec 709. 709 is very small. Rec 2020 is a lot bigger. We'll get into these. We can get into these more details. We could do an hour every week and slowly dig through these. Um, but but I'm just gonna when you when you hear someone say Rec 709, that generally just means standard standard dynamic range video. When they say Rec 2020, it is the it, it's the larger dynamic larger color space that's going to fit the things into it. But it's not Rec 2020 is not HDR. It's just a big color space that can be there. There's a lot of things that sit inside of it. Um, the uh, so then you have essentially you have two major curves um, that we that we pay a lot of attention to, and that's the HLG curve and the PQ curve. Um, so the HLG curve, the, the, what happened was much like 1080p that Courtney was talking about. 
many of these things get discussed for a decade, you know, and people are trying to figure out how to do it. And then it slowly starts popping out. And then some people don't agree and they do it some other way. And that's, that's kind of the, the, the process there. Um, the HLG was created, I believe, by uh, the BBC and NHK. So the BBC and NHK were a little ahead of everybody else. And they started looking at it and they said, here's the deal. We got to keep this simple. We got a bunch of people with regular TVs because they wanted to start it early. They weren't they weren't releasing HDR when everybody has HDR TVs. Because at this point, everybody has some version of an HDR TV. I mean, if you bought it in the last five years, you have some version of HDR um, TV. Um, so they said, well, we need to make sure that we can broadcast something out and it doesn't have to have any metadata. It doesn't have to think about anything. The curve is very close to um, the standard dynamic range. So if you watched it on, if you watch the same signal on stand, standard dynamic range, it would look okay. Um, and if you watched it on HDR, an HDR screen that could support HLG, it'll look better. So basically what happens is if you think about the curve, what it did is said, okay, well, my my standard dynamic range goes like, that's a horrible standard dynamic range. Oh. Standard dynamic range, we'll just say goes like this. And what HLG does is it goes, I'm gonna go up like that, but then I'm gonna go, I'm, gonna just, I'm just gonna veer off at the very top and go like that. And the reason it does that, this, and this gets this is a really important piece of understanding HDR, is that it, it it's describing all of this detail along here. So it gets up here, and I you know it's and it veers off it. I think it's I don't it's like point seven or point five or something like that. But it starts to veer off this way. It'll still look okay on an H, on a on a standard on a uh, um on a standard dynamic range image, but it stretches out how it covers all of those highlights. So basically it has lots and lots of information to cover the highlights that are there. Um, and uh, the that means that your clouds come back. <laughs> you know, what was blown out is all white because it was just the sky. Now you have all that detail to represent the clouds and everything else, but it can still be seen on a regular standard FTV, but you don't need any metadata. You don't need any, any anything extra, anything else. You just plug it in and it's just going to come out the other end. Now, in my opinion, a lot of us have an opinion that it is not, a, it's a blunt object. <laughs> you know, HLG is kind of a blunt, um, a blunt system. Uh, yeah. And uh, Mickey said, Charles is ready to jump in. Charles, please save me. I'm doing the best I can. So yeah, and Charles can come anytime he wants. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, uh, so I think Charles was probably looking, I, I think Charles saw me start to describe this and thought, oh no, oh no, I have to come in and set everything straight before Alex sends everybody down the wrong path. So anyway, so yeah, well, hopefully we'll get Charles in here in a second. Um, so, uh, but I'll keep on talking about some of the terms. Um, so we have HLG, then you have uh, HDR10. Um, HDR10 is the, um, uh, is, it's a free format um, that is that built around the PQ curve. Um, and that PQ curve is a much more, um, so the big thing about the HLG is it looks fine when you look at it on standard def. The PQ curve goes much more, not it's not, it's not linear. People say that and it's not, but anyway, it goes much more along across, which means it looks very dark. It looks, it looks like someone poured coffee over your image. It's gonna look without, without the TV knowing what it's looking at. What you know when you look at a PQ curve is that it looks dark. It looks um, it looks washed out. It looks desaturated. All those things happen with it because it doesn't know what to do with it because it doesn't have the information. It doesn't know that this is if, if a standard definition TV says everything looks all you know it doesn't look right. So you know that that's the case with that. Now the HDR10 starts to not only it needs to be um, interpreted. 
but it also has um, a couple extra pieces of metadata. We talked about the metadata. HLG doesn't need metadata, and that's really good for broadcast, by the way, because broadcast trucks don't want to deal with how do I pass metadata through my entire truck, you know? And so, so HLG is what most production uses, live production uses, because they can just pass it to the truck and they don't have to think about it. HDR10 is more complicated because it's got essentially five major um, things that it that it carries with it per item. So when it's playing out at the very beginning, when it's sending the signal, it's going to send you a max uh, CLL, a max fall, and a uh, and then red, red, green, and blue trims. And so max CLL is the maximum, um, sorry, max CLL is the maximum content light level. That is the brightest point in the in the in this system so that's max cll max fall is the maximum frame average light which is the maximum average light so if you think about your image range max cll defines where this is and max fall defines kind of the it's not the midpoint but it's kind of like the midpoint um, of, of where that is and so that sets that and why that's important is if you're thinking about this graph you're thinking about when you think about a curve the max CLL defines this part of the curve and the max fall essentially defines that part of the curve that pulls. And so that becomes important. And so you can now define that per uh, item, not per scene or per frame, but per item, you know, so a movie can, it'll, it'll, it can tell you, it can say, here's the max CLL, here's the max fall. And then there's, there can also be red, green and trim, red, green and blue trims that, that are added as metadata to it. So you have the standard PQ curve and then there's metadata to kind of like, okay, but we, we're going to trim this. The big thing that happens with Dolby Vision is that Dolby Vision says you can do that every frame. <laughs> so, so now with Dolby Vision, I can do this, the same thing that I can do with, uh, with HDR 10, except I can define that on every frame and it, you don't define it on every frame, but what it means is you can define it at every cut, every scene change. You can change it. Not only can you change the max fall and max CLL, but you can also change the red, green, and blue. So trims. And so you can make, it allows you to make very fine controls over the entire um, uh, piece here. So, um, so that's, you know, that, that's where Dolby Vision lets you, lets you do it per frame. Um, then there is also HDR 10 plus HDR 10 plus is Samsung saying, I don't want to pay for Dolby vision. <laughs> Samsung makes a lot of monitors and they looked at, they looked at Dolby, what Dolby vision Dolby was doing. And, the, and there's a license they have to pay it. I don't know how much, but a certain amount per TV to use Dolby vision to have the Dolby vision logo. And uh, Samsung didn't want to pay it. So they said, well, what, what's the most now Dolby vision does other things, especially if you start do, talking about Dolby vision IQ and lots of other things there. Um, but, but, but Samsung didn't want to pay for it. So HDR10 is we're being cheap, you know? And, um, and so the thing is, is that the problem with HDR10, in my opinion, it's, it's great because it's free and now you can put on a bunch of TVs. It's just not managed and there's no company managing the quality over time. So the big advantage of Dolby Vision over HDR10 is you have a company, Dolby, that is paying attention to the what happens in Resolve, what happens in Premiere, what happens in the pipeline, what happens in, and they're paying attention to how all those things, and they're also working on things like Dolby, Dolby, Dolby Vision IQ, which is paying attention to the ambient light inside of the room that you're in. So if you get a LG monitor with Dolby Vision IQ, and a lot of this is trying to, how do we have what we call the artist's intent? Um, how do we have what the director or what the, what the colorist or what the, the um, you know, what they wanted it to look like? 
actually show up on the other side on the screen because we used to joke that NTSC was never the same color. <laughs> so, so it was like always. And so the idea, the, the holy grail is how do we pull all of that back in and, and make that all that all work. And so um, Dolby Vision is the, because they're, they're managing that entire pipeline and they continue to manage that and, they, and they've worked through that, it's, it's the high standard for that. And again, if you don't want to pay, pay as much as a licensee, then you have HDR10, which is kind of the, we are cheap. And so, um, so the uh, uh, versions, when you see HDR10, you just, instead of Dolby Vision, you just know that that TV line is being cheap. <laughs> so, so anyway, then, you know, and, and not having, and, and maybe not losing that much control right now, but as the, as the platform keeps on progressing, continuing to lose those things. Um, and so those are the big formats that you have. And again, the, the big things that to remember is that they, I mean, the, to start remembering and we'll start answering questions and, and, uh, uh, Charles can add any, anything or correct anything I've said up until now. Um, but the, uh, the, the big thing is you want to think about that there's two curves, there's two base curves. That's the HLG curve and the, um, the, the two, and, and PQ, and then the metadata is, manipulating those. And when I say manipulating those, um, one of the things that I, uh, we lost Charles. He was right there. Um, so bad. He decided, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, when we say that the metadata is, um, applied to both HLG and PQ, normally we don't, we don't apply metadata to the HLG. We provide metadata to the PQ curve, um, for HDR 10 and Dolby vision, except for Apple. Apple records on your phone. When you see HDR, Apple is recording. It says Apple says they're recording HLG. They're, they're recording Dolby Vision, but they're actually recording HLG with um, the the Dolby Vision metadata to pull that HLG back, you know, back up to um, a Dolby Vision experience. Because what you're doing when we build a lot of these things, most of the time, we don't. When we're doing the exposure. It's from zero to 1,000. So most of the stuff, the, the PQ curve, we're building everything against a, a, a zero to 1,000 scale. Then we're using the metadata in the PQ curve to go further than that. So we go from zero to 1,000, and then the metadata pulls it up to 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 or whatever we, where we want to go with that. So a lot of times, you know, we're, we're pointing out, why, why do you do that? Is because if you made everything, because the PQ curve is a, is a hard curve. It's not a... HLG stretches with the exposure of your, of your, of your, um, HLG will stretch with the exposure of your television. <laughs> so it's a curve that just goes across that entire thing. And if it's brighter, the, the midpoints are brighter if it's darker. And one of the problems they have is that HLG doesn't actually look, if you on a real standard definition monitor, it actually doesn't look as good. It looks a little dark, not a lot dark, not like PQ. PQ is like, this is a hard curve. <laughs> this is what I'm doing uh, across these. So you have to define that as zero to 1000. And then the metadata, again, allows you to tweak it to keep pulling those highlights up and down. So you're adding a curve. Again, you're adding, not a curve, but adding extra data to stretch that up and down um, as you go over or under that. But that's your, your zero to 1000 nits is kind of your standard there. So so anyway, so the um, uh, so that we're mostly correcting to a thousand nits and then using the metadata to take it somewhere further than that. Um, you know, as we, as we actually start to work with it. So, so anyway, that's the, the, um, that is uh, a very, very fast overview of it. Charles, did you want to add anything or do you just want to be here to answer questions? Did you, I don't know how much of what I said you saw. Uh, 
I heard a little bit, but everything technical that you said was actually is pretty on. Okay. Right. So, and if there's anybody that I trust to technically get things right, it's usually you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, it, so, it, it, it was yeah. funny. I was prepping for this. I'm always, you know, I didn't, I haven't taken any classes on HDR. I've just done a bunch of HDR. And so I, I have, you know, like things that you, the problem with HDR is, is and, and I want to build like a little book booklet of like understanding HDR in a nutshell. And so I've been kind of thinking yeah. about it. when I read all these articles, there's so many of them that are bad. It's why I was like, oh, we should talk about that. There's so many of them that are not. So, so anyway, so you mostly yeah. concur with the, what I've talked about up until yes. now. Is, is there yes. anything else you want to add? Um, I think creatively right now, there seems to be two schools of HDR grading. One is keeping, that's like the ratios that you have instead of your SDR grade, which is keeping like the ratio between like your key fill and your light and the shadows and darks. And you keep all that the same, but then as you go to HDR, you just move the image up and perhaps maybe open up the top end to get the highlights to live a little bit more. Right. That is one way. And the other way is to actually, if something is sitting at 50 nits, 40 nits in SDR, to actually keep that same nit level going to HDR and then letting everything above that breathe a little bit more. Right? So sometimes you'll have shows that if you're looking at the HDR, and then you switch to the SDR, your SDR will probably look brighter because your TV is pushing it up to what the TV is capable of. But the HDR is being mapped to something closer to the creative intent of the house and the producer and the colorist. So that is still a bit of an issue. And I'm not sure how going forward we're going to be fixing that. Um, well, and I and I do think that, that what's important is people think of HDR as, oh, it's just brighter. And that's not exactly. really the point. It's that there's more detail in the highlights. There's more there to see than there was before, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. You can think about it. It's just having, having a larger playpen to play with. You have more crayons, more colored pencils. You could play with a lot more the range that you have to play with. But, but with that comes a lot more responsibility. Right, because now you have to decide where do I want to put these skin tones? Where do I want to put this background? Before in a hundred nits SDR, you could get away with a lot more if you were technically sound. You could get away with a lot more. Now you have this huge sandbox, and whatever small mistakes that you got away with in SDR are not compounded in HDR. So whatever was wrong will really show up in HDR. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. so trying to keep those small nuances and just knowing that you do have the ability to, to choose where you want that background, where you want that highlight. Most, most things um, in HDR don't need to be as bright as most people are expecting it. Uh, most surfaces are not emitting light, they're reflecting light. And so if you keep that in mind, you'll get a pretty good sense of, if you go outside, most things are receiving light and reflecting light. Headlights, candles, shine off the hood of a car, perhaps, will get to those really, really, like, 
bright peaks, but those things we're used to experiencing on the outside. Skin tones are not one of those things. Uh, so right now, I do see a lot of stuff on Instagram and other places where the HDR is. Um, it doesn't feel right. Right. It's uh, it's looking like pretty bad. Bro. You could say. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But we have a lot more leeway now and ability to choose exactly how we want to paint that image and the colors, and especially with the saturation that we could achieve. If you have a monitor that could actually produce that in the higher nit levels, you have a new world to play with. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And one thing that I, that I didn't address that, that is important to all these discussions is, is the bit depth. So a lot of us talk about there's the, two, the, the major bit depths that we, that we, we end up talking about are eight bit, 10 bit, 12 bit. And this is how many bits are dedicated to each channel, red, green, and blue. Um, so it's not, you know, and so when we have eight bit, and this is what we've grown up with <laughs> is 256 levels. So there can be 256 different gray values in the red, um, green or blue. So they, they each have that and there's, and that's been good for a lot of things that we've done. Um, then we have 10 bit and 10 bit is 1024 and 12 bit is 4096. And the main thing there is that, um, as you add each bit, of course, you double the number of, of things and we, and we don't use the odd numbers. <laughs> so, so anyway, so so that's why it's four times each one. When you have those extra bits, the big thing is, is where you see that as in gradients. So when I'm going from uh, the places that you really see it, which is interesting, is when you're changing not very much over a long distance is a good example of it. If I go from a value here to a value here, there may not be, it was two different places, There there may not be enough grays for that every pixel is a different value. Like, so if I'm going from here to here, that might work in 10 bit, but I may only have this value, then this value, then this value, then this value for eight bit, because I, it doesn't have anywhere to describe it. It fits into, and what that looks like when you see it is typically posterization. So posterization is where you see those, um, you see kind of, it looks like stair steps along your sky or along your gradients, and especially along your CG, renders that don't have any grain. Grain tends to break all of this up. So you, you sometimes we add grain to get rid of it in 8-bit. But but the main thing is, is that when you have a really smooth, you know, conversion, and that's why I tell you in HDR, like CG rendered stuff that is rendered out at 12-bit and then put into HDR just looks unbelievable because you're just not, it's just such a, you know, with no grain, it just, it just looks, it looks incredible because it, it can finally be represented somewhere. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, so, so the, so that as you end up with more of those, the other place that that happens is the same thing on a, on a big change like this, it's jumping, but it may not have, it may not have the description to go all the way to that brightness, you know, to, to there. And so you start to see some, some posterization as well. You see, it just drop, it's not posterization. You see things just drop off, um, fast between those two. But the main thing is these, these gradients, the skies, um, and a lot of other places. And so generally we can't, we can take 8-bit. It doesn't mean we can't stretch it and remap it to HDR. And we're going to do that. We've done that with Zoom here in a couple of the tests. So you absolutely can remap it, um, but you will start to see more posterization. Like that is because we're now taking that 8-bit and we're just separating it out. We're pulling it apart. And that data wasn't there in the first place. <laughs> so um, now there are ways to fix that. Like if, if we are 4K and you stretch 8-bit to 10-bit, but you take, that eight, you take the 8-bit, convert it to 10-bit, and then scale it 
back down to 1080p, for instance, it the oversampling will mush some of that together and actually reduce a little bit of that, but it's not perfect. So anyway, so the so those bit those bit depths are really important. Uh, Ten bit is kind of the minimum to get good HDR, and twelve bit if you're really going if you're going for four thousand nits or you're going for something in, or you have really fine gradients, you're gonna need a twelve bit um, image, and that that not a lot of cameras do that. Um, you're your rendering engines can do that. <laughs> 3D can go, oh yeah, you want 12-bit or 16-bit, you just let me know. Um, the cameras tend not to go to 12-bit. Most of the cameras that we have are doing 10-bit. Some do. And you can. And then there's also taking RAW and converting to 12-bit and, and so on and so forth. So so those are, that's the other thing that we just need to always keep in mind because that's important as well. Um, we got a lot of questions stacking up. Okay, let's, let's go. And Charles, just poke your head into any of these of you. Um, uh, Alton Christensen in New York says, please clarify the difference between the HLG and Dolby Vision and their workflows. Um, and yeah, Charles, just raise your hand for any of those in the back end. Are you in the, yeah, you're in the system there. So um, uh, the the main thing is, is that HLG, of course, has the HLG curve. It's a, st- it's a set curve. The HDR, the Dolby Vision is working off the PQ curve and adding metadata to it um, to adjust it up and down automatically for that. Now, again, the, Exception to that is the way Apple uses it, which is HLG with metadata to uh, to make that work within the iPhone. Go ahead, Charles. Yeah. So, so inside Adobe Vision, you do get a lot more room to fine tune your. Okay. Inside of the metadata that you create for your delivery of HDR, in Adobe Vision, you'll get the ability to actually do your trims because if you're delivering for let's say Netflix or Apple, you might need to do a trim for a 600 nit. Right? So when you deliver for Adobe Vision, you have to do your HDR, which right now the standard is a thousand nits, but you also have to do an SDR trim. Right? And their signal will go and figure out what your device can actually take and it'll do that for you. But in between them, now there's a lot of monitors that can reach 500, 600, maybe 700 nits. So we have to do a trim that is going to help us get a little closer to the capabilities of your home monitor. Um, and those trims in Dolby Vision is where the real magic starts to happen for them, which is where the value comes in because I can see my HDR 1000 nit trim. I could also see my 600 and 500 nit trims and adjust those to make the best of the image within that given range. And the same thing for SDR. And it's something that you only get inside of Dolby Vision. Everybody else lets the manufacturer, the TV manufacturer, sort of figure out what it can display. And it turns into a bit of a melee. But Dolby Vision is really, really leading the way in how we actually fine-tune and map to each individual display out in the wild. Next question. Next question. Did I, did okay. I oh, you're coming back to me? Okay. Uh, Andy Kokendorfer in VR Florida asks, to stream HDR, do you need to maintain Rec 2020 through the entire signal and encoding path? I lost that one somehow. Um, <laughs> like on, on mine here. Hold on. Uh, I'm on the next one somehow. Let me refresh here. Um, yeah. So in general, I guess what I would say there is, uh, sorry, I'm in a little bit of a... Um, we got into some kind of weird state there. Um, anyway, so the uh, 
did we get rid of this one? Done. Sorry. Sorry for the inside baseball. Just a little confused there. Um, yeah. So the, you go ahead, Charles. Yes. Um, I would say that right now you can contain your work pipeline to REC 2020, but we don't have any monitors that can actually view 100% of REC 2020. So if you do have your pipeline set to REC 2020, what you will be asked to do by Netflix and Apple and Amazon is to then, inside of the REC 2020, then constrain your color space to P3. And that's something that you have to ask them if you're delivering some project um, where it's going to... And can you define P3 for folks? Oh, P3 is... Well, it's essentially what Apple has been using for a while now, which is actually great for a lot of us. But it sits in between, let's say, REC 709 and REC 2020. It's a bit more saturation, a bit more color volume. Um, It's getting us closer to what our eyes can actually see, but we have a ways to go to get there, but it's definitely a step up from REC 709. But but it is something that you have to maintain if you are delivering something to a, a provider. Um, they will let you know what you need to deliver. It could be that you just deliver in REC 2020 and you have to monitor your signal path completely because right now we don't have any monitors that could actually showcase REC 2020 completely. Um, so a way to get around is to just go and constrain your signal path inside of REC 2020 to just P3. And that's been the workflow we've had for a couple of years now. We'll see what happens in the next couple of, of years. Yeah, and and whether you can go from 709 to 2020 back and forth is again, comes back to bit depth because you're squashing everything down. If, if you have enough bit depth to hold on to that, you might be able to pull it back up again. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> so, so generally, you want to keep, like everything else, you want to stay at the highest quality you can through the entire pipeline. And then you want to drop down just to go to delivery. You know, so you want it to be at the, you know, the highest resolution, the highest uh, bit depth, the highest, all those things. You want to be at the highest there as, as much as you can through the entire pipeline. And then at the very last moment, you go down to, de- to your delivery output, which can be um, something a little bit different. Um, next question. And this one's in from Richard Lavery in Belfast. What would be an example of HDR pipeline for live? Yeah, so we're going to be doing more of that um, on our pipelines uh, as we move forward into the next year. And so the main thing is, is that you have to, uh, you can take, again, you might need something where you're taking certain signals and converting them from a, from a uh, 709 to, so by the way, something's happening on the back end. Things are moving and I can't, it's very, it's very confusing for me. Um, anyway, so um, the, uh, uh so the the way that you would the way that we do it typically now we're looking at HLG for some things because the pipeline's simpler, but the way we've done it in the past so far is that we have HDR10. Um, we're conver- converting to PQ, the PQ, the raw PQ curve, um, and we pass it through um, our system, and that and that's going to be we want our cameras to come in a lot. Of, now there is we've done things where we've literally taken the entire pipeline and pushed it into log. And we just run log all the way. Like if we're using all black magic cameras, we can run log all the way through the, the switcher, you know, out to the encoder. And what we do is we literally color correct the cameras to the output. So it goes into an encoder. Um, for us, it's an elemental. It goes into that encoder as log, you know, and then we convert it to uh, sometimes Dolby Vision, sometimes HDR10. 
But what we do is we look at our streamed output and we literally correct our cameras from that log and we don't go through the, the HDR curve at all. And the advantage of that is it gives us this weird in-between between HLG, you know, which is that I don't need any metadata. I just have raw cameras coming through and, and it's just it's just a raw log um, or a log signal that's passing through the entire system. And then when it gets to the very end, I just, I just uh, twist it to where I need it to be. Um, you know, the disadvantage, of course, is that not everything's coming in log. And then you get into when you, the place that this starts to get tricky is graphics. <laughs> so your graphics are coming in lin, linear and your, and your, um, and your cameras are log and you have to figure out how you're going to correct those back to where they need to be. So it, it becomes a little tricky. The, the other thing you have to be very careful of is, um, how, for instance, black magic switchers approach this because black magic switchers will go, if you give it 4k, it'll go, Oh, you want rec 2020. <laughs> you know, like it'll just decide, like it sees a cam, one camera that's rec 20 that looks, that's got an eight, uh, you know, some kind of HDR, uh, LUT and it'll go, Oh, you want, you want HDR. And maybe I don't, <laughs> or maybe I do want it. And it's giving me 709 because I did 1080p, you know, and, and so there's a lot of auto things inside of the constellation that become a little complicated. Anyway, the point is, is that what we do is we, we, we make it a PQ curve and then we get to the encoder and in the encoder, we say, okay, we want this to be, um, we're going to have this be Dolby Vision or HDR10. That encoder can either sit in the, um, the encoder can sit at, uh, we have elemental encoders at the office that will just do that. Like it's, there's a Dolby Vision plugin that you pay for um, that will do the the conversion to Dolby Vision and Atmos um, if you send it. Um, so there's two things there. There's the HDR and Atmos. Now Atmos, we just send it um, either... We're not sending objects, object data. So the big thing about live production is we can't send metadata. Sending metadata through an SDI signal is not something that we can really do. So the best we can do is if we know what the max CLL and max fall. So if you give me a playout that I have to play out live, I'll take it into Resolve and I will analyze that clip. And that and and Resolve will tell me what the max CLL and the max fall are. And then I literally put them into the encoder. <laughs> I just type them into the encoder and you have to multiply it by 0. 0.002 or something like that to get the number that the encoder wants. But anyway, I put that into the encoder and that creates my max CLL and max fall for that stream. Um, and that's going to make the adjustment that you need to make, you know, for that, for that um, signal. The, the, um, the other place that you can encode it now, and this is what we're doing as we go towards um, YouTube, is you can do for HDR10 and HLG, well, HDR10, I haven't gotten HLG to work with YouTube, but HDR10, uh, that can be done in the cloud, that can be done in AWS. And so what we do is we take the signal that we have and we um, uh, we give it, uh, we send it through, you know, we're using FSHDRs to make sure that everything is a PQ, um, you know, a, a PQ curve, they go into um, the little elemental link, the 4K version that does 10-bit. It goes up into AWS, and in AWS, I define it as HDR, and I can define some of those numbers there, um, and push it, and it pushes out to uh, YouTube as an HDR10 signal. And then if you want to do uh, Atmos, we're really just sending it beds. So we're sending it a 514, 7, 714, 916, You'll send those beds to, um, you know, and you embed them. You can have up to 16 channels on an SDI signal, so you embed those. And when they go into the encoder, you can tell it, I want to take these beds and turn them in and turn them into Atmos. And then the the Atmos will uh, encoder will, will make that work. Um, if you're doing 5.1, which is what we're working on doing for YouTube, um, then we just define those beds as 5 to 5.1. It's, uh, uh, I think it's uh, left, right, uh, center, LFE, 
uh, lefts around, rights around. <laughs> so, so anyway, those are the, those are the ones that, that that's how you send that out there. So, uh, so anyway, that's that's the basic pipeline, and we'll talk more and more about that as we start to turn it on uh, within our system. Um, next question. Bobby Rafferty from Central Florida. Anyone used the Larix broadcast Apple iPhone app to stream in Dolby Vision or any other iOS app to stream in HDR? I don't know of any iOS app that streams in uh, Dolby Vision or in HDR. So if Larix does it, that's pretty cool. So we'll have to take a look at it. But I haven't seen that actually occur. The only thing wireless that I've seen do that is the um, Live View will actually do a 10-bit HDR um, broadcast. And so... We're hoping to test that soon, too. Uh, next question. Tommy Shantz from St. Paul, Minnesota asks, Is there an A standard? My father always said that's the thing about standards. Everyone has one. <laughs> Go ahead, Charles. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the main thing that you want to keep is full control of your color pipeline from capture to delivery. So you want to capture in raw log. And then when you bring it into your computer, whether it's Resolve or Baselight or Mystica, um, you tend to work in the largest color space possible. So you'll work in Log C, maybe, let's say, DaVinci Wide Gamut, Rec 2020. Um, but you want to keep it as wide as possible. And the only time that you bring it down is going to be to your display space that you're going to be viewing. Now, most people still just have SDR, so you'll be going to, let's say, Gamma 2.4, Rec. 709. If you have an HDR monitor, you'll be doing PQ, let's say P3, because that's the standard. But the standard for the pipeline is to constantly work as large as possible and bring it down to your display at the very, very end. And that's a pipeline that you really have to maintain. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and yeah. Next question. Next question from Alton Christensen in New York, New York. Which of this alphabet soup of color spaces is currently the best one to originate footage in? Blog. <laughs> Charles. Yeah, yeah. Log, raw, and the camera that we can all agree with that we will end up doing the least amount of work if it's shot properly is on an array. I do the least amount of post-production work on any log C3 or log C4 footage that comes in. It's just, but the color science is, 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 it is as accurate and as pristine as you want it to be. And the math that you can apply to it is, is, is very nice. I find that most of the time you take an airy and just do the airy curve in, in you know the airy node or just do a basic conversion from airy to rec 709 for instance or to whatever pla- or whatever output and you're like yeah you're pretty close um and then and then if you if you have a if you have a charles klein it can get a lot better but but <laughs> as a user with airy the one thing you know is you can just open it up and make the conversion and it's going to look okay like it's going to like most clients will go oh that looks really nice go ahead mitchell yeah i agree the airy uh certainly looks better but on specs, the Venice is better. So the question is, do you go by thinks or specs or what? How do you do that? Is it all, um, is it all a subjective call? Well, most, about 70 to 80% of all fi- major films are shot with an area. So, so I think that they've made decisions about that. We definitely switched to Venice um, on live events. We switched to Venice's because the area up until the new um, 35, the Super 35 that they just came out with, was so difficult to work with in a live environment that we just, 
to, we just went to Venice, you know, to do that as a, you know, because we needed to have that larger format. Um, and we've done, you know, again, from an affordability perspective, there's a lot to say, there's a lot to, a lot of good things about the Black Magic Ursas. As far as that goes, they've gotten really good. And especially for five or $6,000, they're incredible. And the other cameras in that range that are really nice that, that we like are the FX6s. And we're looking at, you know, we're going to be talking about the FR7s on Thursday. <laughs> so, so the, but those are full frame Sony sensors. But, but again, the, the challenge with the, um, uh, you know, the, the Venice's, you know, the Venice's are good. I, we just don't think that they are, their color science is as good as the, as Airy. I don't know if you agree, Charles, but. Um, the, yes, I would say that the color science of the Venice's is more accurate than the Airy. The, um, the color science of the area is more pleasing. And I, I, it's really hard to define it that way, but it is, I just feel like it's not that the area, in my opinion, makes an image that is exactly what I saw when I was there. It's better than what I saw when I was there. <laughs> and I don't know exactly how to define that, but it's just a really, it's a, it's an incredible thing. And, and then, and, and again, I've shot tons and tons of stuff very successfully with the Blackmagic uh, cameras as well. That's what I own. You know, I own the Blackmagic 12Ks. And so we, we shoot with those. We love them. Um, they have been great, great cameras for us. Uh, but when someone asked me like, okay, you have to shoot this really expensive thing and money's no object, we rent Aries. You know, and if we do that, if we're gonna do live, then we rent Venice's. Um, uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asks, can you suggest an affordable HDR capture card? Deck link. Most of the deck links will do it. Uh, it's just they don't capture the metadata, so you're not trying to capture HDR10. You're just trying to capture they'll 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 capture Rec 2020. Um, so again, if I was going to capture something, you want something that's going to be able to capture the 10 bit. You're going to want to have something that's doing that that supports the Rec 2020 space, and then you want to capture and log. <laughs> that's what, you know, like you capture the log data live out of the camera. And no, normally, what you want to do is actually capture in the camera, just capture it in RAW. But if you can't, then those are the ones to use. Now, next question. Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Canada. I wonder about the burnout of monitors if they're overdriving the brightness to manage HDR at high nits, or do I have this wrong? Uh, Charles. Yeah, so most mastering monitors are OLEDs. The king is still the X300, which is no longer being manufactured. If you have one of those, you hold on to it for dear life. Um, the next OLED was the DM250 from Flanders. And then the larger one is the XM551U, which is the one that I have up on my wall. Um, I do concern myself with some burnout, so I use it only when I need it. Um, it does have a capability that if it notices that I haven't changed anything on the image, it will dim itself, right? And then come back once I start to... Um, great, but over the long term, um, you will see some drifts. You have to calibrate. Most of these professional OLEDs, uh, they do have a half life of twenty to thirty thousand hours, and usually by then, depending on the usage, there is something new in <clears throat> um, um, new in the industry that you are going to move to, or the monitor has paid for itself over and over and over, so you don't mind <laughs> getting another get, one. Just get another yeah. one, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's a concern. 
Yeah, and and with consumer monitors, OLED is the thing you really have to worry about. And you should really consider like 15 seconds, the longest you want to leave something up there for a consumer OLED monitor. Um, and so what you don't want to do is watch MSNBC on your OLED monitor. Get a cheap monitor for that because, you know, because all that stuff going across the bottom is going to burn right into your monitor. So, so the main thing is, is that um, we're really sensitive to it. That's why we've been talking about like when you look at our countdown clock, it looks a little dark. It's specifically, it's not... It's not all things are going to burn in. It's things that are bright that are going to really burn in there. So bright whites and so on and so forth. So you'll see our countdown clock is kind of low because we're playing with what what are we going to do- deliver for HDR as we get ready to do that um, to to make that work. Um, so so something to think about. Next question is from Alton Christensen um, in uh, New York, New York, and he and uh, Alton asks uh, what application has the best HDR color workflow? FCP, Premiere, Resolve, or something else? Go ahead, Charles. I would say Resolve, Baselight, and Mystica. Um, I've seen some issues with Premiere, and it's only because I can't see what is happening on the back end that it's causing a transform or a shift, and I can't control it. Mm-hmm. So I tend to stay away from it. If you want to be able to control every single pixel and bit that you have available that you captured, Resolve right now because it is free so you mm-hmm. really can't go wrong with that um it's going to give you the ability to control the entire pipeline that does mean that you need to know exactly how to control that pipeline but it is the go-to standard yeah you're right Mitchell. yeah i've done it with uh, premiere and resolve resolve is going to be the winner in the long run because it just has much better color science it just has a lot more precision you know, like that's the big thing that, that we find is that we can't, there's with both Premiere, but especially my experience is mostly Final Cut and, and Resolve. And if I'm doing something fast, I do made, you know, some minor correction and so on and so forth, I'll do it in Final Cut because I can cut a lot faster in it. And I th- think that's partially the app and partially that I've used it for a long time. If I'm, if I need to do precision color, I will tend to go to Resolve because now I, I can make the conversions that I need to make. I can also send it to Charles to make the conversions that I can't make. So so anyway, so the um, so but but I usually move to Resolve pretty quickly after that. And the entire management process of of a more precise thing is is where we use that. But um, but I think it's probably the best one of the major ones that are that are out there. Charles mentioned a couple that I haven't even heard of. <laughs> so oh, yeah. we'll bring them in. And I would have to also add Flame because because Flame yeah. is still very popular in particular with beauty work. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. but I'd say Resolve, Flame, Baselight, and Mystica are the go-to standards right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next question. Uh, Richard Bowman from Defiance, Ohio. Probably a silly question, but why is it if I shoot and log on different cameras and apply a 709 LUT provided by the manufacturer that the output looks significantly different from camera to camera. Shouldn't it look the same? Go ahead, Charles. Yeah, so this is an ongoing thing, but essentially what is happening is that each manufacturer has their own approach to what it is that they want to translate to Rec. 709. Because as you're going from a large body, let's say a 10-gallon tank, you're trying to squeeze it down to a 2-gallon tank, and the manufacturers are choosing different things that they deem valuable to bring to Rec. 709, right? Um, so you will always have that difference between all of them, which is why having control and knowing what you captured and where you're going to, the math 
is out there, which is essentially after you pass the sensor, all you are doing is applying math, right? right? So you can get yourself in and out of trouble, but as long as you keep that in mind, you're only applying math to get from one color space to another color space. If you know what the manufacturer does prefer for their particular camera, right? You can use that and then adjust to it. If you want to get creative, sometimes you will apply your own contrast curve or your own color signs that you developed. Um, and that will give you slightly better results depending on what your outcome is going to be. But that's usually the case. They have their own capabilities for each sensor and their own way of processing the signal. So you always get that little shift, like the Sony's get a little bit of green, you know, the Canons do something else. So yeah, it's an ongoing thing. And the reality is even the old days with just regular cameras, all the cameras have different color science and all the cameras look different. It's just that you see it a lot more in HDR because it's much more dramatic. But but the seven, in, in 709, different cameras and even different lenses. When you really get into color correction, different lenses um, uh, are a little cooler or a little warmer. And so you have to pay attention to all of that. Next question. Next one from Douglas Carmichael. What role will the FS HDR play in the Office Hours production pipeline? Will it create HDR from SDR? Yeah, exactly. So what it's going to do is, as we stack a couple, there's a couple different things we're going to do. Um, one is, in the beginning, what we're going to start doing over the next couple of weeks as we start to experiment without the the new ones, we're going to take SDR and convert it to HDR. And that's what we've done in the past, and we're going to start doing that again. In the future, what we hope to do, if we get a couple, we're looking for another a couple of FSHDRs that are going to be lent to us. Um, we want to be able to color correct every panelist individually for HDR. So we tweak every panelist. Um, and in general, my goal is to build a LUT for every panelist <laughs> eventually um, so that we just apply, you know, the Charles LUT or the Mitchell LUT or the Tom LUT, you know, and on each one of the on, you know, and we automatically just say, well, this is, oh, we have this person coming to this input. We're going to give them that LUT. And the idea is, is that we really, you know, as long as they, and if they change their background or change their scene, then we have to just do a raw conversion. But if they stay, you know, day in, day out on the same location, we're going to get the most out of their image. Then we're going to pass that back in. And the, the idea is that then the constellation will all work in HDR. That means that all of our playouts are HDR. All of our, any live cameras coming in from a live view or from a scene or HDR. And then um, we would go back out and then take another FS HDR and go back down to SDR for the SDR feed and take the HDR one and send it out. And so that's kind of our, that's where we're trying to get to. Um, hopefully in the next, uh, you'll start to see us turn some of the switches back on um, over the next uh, couple of weeks um, so as we get ready for, you know, January. Next question. I have a question. Uh, I've got a new Sony LED and a new Sony OLED. They both can do HDR, which is the better suited for HDR display. Dynamic range versus brightness. Good, Charles. So I would first find out what NIT level or what HDR certification they have, because, you know, the HDR 400 or 600, those are still pretty low in the professional HDR world. But for dynamic range, you would still go for the OLED because you get those pure blacks and you'll get closer to what they probably saw in the grading suite. For brightness, if your living room is pretty bright in the middle of the day, the LED will give you most brightness and you won't be as concerned with 
uh, the black's getting a little milky because your environment is so bright. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, the technology is uh, change. Uh, technology is a changing right now, and uh, many LED and even some of their OLEDs aren't necessarily OLEDs. They're not necessarily uh, a phosphor uh, or a, a LED that emits a certain color, like blue or red or green. They'll go with a UV LED behind a uh, quantum dot filter, and this gives them the color uh, so that they have more evenness of aging, uh, that you don't run into the problem of uh, the OLEDs originally had with uh, blue blue aging out much quicker than the other colors. So, um, and those can generate uh, much more brightness. I think my QLED uh, is a similar technology, only they don't use an individual LED for each color pixel. They use a single LED, uh, UV LED for three pixels, and uh, then they use local dimming uh, to, to achieve your black levels uh, a, lot, a lot easier. And those can generate much higher uh, output if you need your thousand nits. The OLEDs have a difficulty in hitting that uh, high brightness that's required for uh, you know, full HDR, I think. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, they've kind of changed uh, some of that science, Courtney. For example, on the uh, the new uh, up, uh, upgraded OLED from Sony, what they do is they have a processor called the X1 processor that adjusts the brightness in the areas that need the brightness. Now, I think that a, a, a colorist like Charles would be concerned that they're messing with my uh, hard work uh, on grading that film um, at the computer level or the AI level. But... Uh, for the most part, it's bright enough, but um, I just like that dynamic range more. Next question. Next question in from Alton Christensen in New York, New York. Any favorite YouTubers or training discussions on all types of these HDR, HLG, and Dolby Vision workflows? Go ahead, Charles. So on YouTube, you have to be careful because to really get a good sense of HDR and what it can do. You really need to have a monitor that can show you what it can do. And those are very few and far between. Not a lot of people are spending $30,000 in a monitor, especially if they're on YouTube. Um, for a lot of information on HDR and Dolby Vision, go to the Dolby website. They do have a lot of free information and training that is pretty great. And when I first started, I would just read as much as I could on their website. And then if you want to go and get certified, it's not a hard process. It's technically a little challenging at first, but once you get through the rigmarole of all the phrases and the wordings and what you have to do, it gets a lot easier. And then going forward, it's uh, it's going to be the thing to do. But I'd go for the Dolby site. Um, there's a lot of good information there. Uh, next question. Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. Are current Apple iPhones and iPad Pro considered HDR screens, if not technically? Go ahead, Charles. So I'd say that the iPads in particular, and a bunch of us in the middle of the pandemic used these to get through HDR productions. Um, if you render a PQ file, it will trigger the HDR on the iPad and it will show you. Right now, for a consumer display, it's technically first, and second is a far, far, far behind. Yeah. These are amazing displays, and for what they can do for the price, um, you can't beat it. 
Yeah, it's it it may it may have some you know foibles from a high end monitor, but man, you got to spend a lot on a monitor before you can match the accuracy of a phone and, a, and an iPhone and an iPad. Like it's yeah. it's a you know it's it's not a trivial amount before you start getting into something. When I'm streaming HDR, the thing that I pay attention to the most is my iPad. Like I just look at the HLS set, you know the HLS stream on my iPad. Uh, or my YouTube stream, whatever, and I'm I'm looking at it, and making decisions about what we're doing, what's working, not working on the stream. You know, we can do a lot of things before that, but that's going to really tell me how people are going to see it, um, or the best possible, the best possible way they're going to watch the stream is most likely going to be through um, that that solution. So it's they're they're really impressive. Uh, next question, Arshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, asks, "What can YouTube do to better their video quality? They're in HLS, right?" Yeah, the HLS isn't that much of a difference than than the RTMP from a quality perspective, but it allows them to support um, more channels of audio. It allows them to ch- support the HDR and I believe 10-bit. I don't think you can. I don't know if you can do 10-bit uh, RTMP. So, so there's you know there are you have to do if you're doing HDR to YouTube, you have to do a HLG or I'm sorry, I mean HLS um, to, uh, to to make that work. So that's a that's a required um, output. Uh, for it. And it takes a little bit of a tweaking because uh, for us, it's easy if you're using something like OBS or Wirecast, they have HDR settings that'll just go right out to YouTube. If you're using Elementals, Elemental defines uh, the HLS a little differently than, than YouTube. So you have, there's a little bit of tweaking there, but it can be done. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, SoFi Stadium touts their full 4K HDR production pipeline and HDR-capable LED video board. Is there any advantage to HDR in large venue environments with long distances between the screen and the viewer? Absolutely. I mean, in fact, in some ways, it's even more. Um, you know, when you look at a at an LED monitor, if it's if it's really good, an LED screen, I've seen some that are HDR. The main thing is, is it's just all the tones, like the sky, the fire, the 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 um any kind of clouds or smoke all of that's going to look way better on an LED wall that has HDR that's that can support that dynamic range than it does on an SDR. Right, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and remember, a lot of these LED walls are are in stadiums where you've got sunlight, so you're competing. Your eyeballs are competing with the brightness of the sun and the brightness of that LED screen, and it can hold up much better in a sunlight mm-hmm. uh, lit uh, stadium. Yeah. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael finishing up here. Does the free resolve version have the HDR analysis features, Max CLL and uh, others, or do you have to have the studio version? Go ahead, Charles. Yes, you, you can do a, I believe it's a L0 or L1 analysis, mm-hmm. and it'll give you those uh, those numbers. The only thing that you won't be able to do is do any trims to change the metadata, but you should be able just to at least get the max fall and and get a baseline to what your grade could look yeah. like. So you get that in a free version. Yeah, the, the free resolve is pretty amazing. Like you can get an awful lot done. You can build your LUTs. You can build, you know, you can do your, these types of things, you know, doing just the basic analysis um, for it. So it's, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good deal. All right. Thanks, Charles, for coming in at the last minute uh, and uh, adding a little extra color <laughs> to the to the to the mix. Uh, so, so, like, just, just as far as giving Thanks, us a little Mickey. more, yeah, yeah. Oh, Mickey, did Mickey say oh, you know, <laughs> Morpheus fighting Neo? So anyway, like, yeah. Hey, so, Charles, what are you doing? 
Yeah, yeah. Like we need to get in here. So, so um, it's great, Charles, to to, to have you kind of t- talk a little. When we're talking about the color space, when we're talking about HDR, it's it's really great to have you in to uh, to really uh, expand on it. So I'll I'll get better at, at telling you in advance. You know, I figured well, if he wants to come in, he'll come in. I didn't want to bug you, but I but uh, I didn't know it was happening. I was actually trying to deliver something to a client and I got the message from Mickey. So I quickly set off renders on a different machine. <laughs> Very <laughs> I was like, good. Okay, let me see if I can get ready. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get, we'll, we'll be able to drag Charles into more of these, these conversations and we'll, uh, um, and we'll, I'd like to talk about HDR at least once a, once a month, you know, just to kind of keep on, cause it's not, for me, it's been something that slowly sinks in. It's not something that I, like you, you have one session or you read one book. It's that you're kind of like, constantly you're playing with it you're talking about it you're looking at it and you say oh i understand what that means <laughs> oh that you know and and so so my recommendation to everyone is just keep studying that we're going to keep on talking about it we'll probably bring in some other experts to talk about it um and uh, we'll lean on charles whenever he's available we'll start scheduling them around charles's schedule um make sure that it all works uh, so it's, it's really really great to have him and thanks to the rest of the panel it's just uh, first hour went great second hour went great that's great great to have you here we can't do this without you thanks to the producers i wasn't sure i when i got to the top of the hour two, with two questions i was like eh, i don't know if we're gonna make it <laughs> like this could be really short that's why i warned you I was like this could be really short um but uh, the producers uh uh, came in full force and had uh, asked a lot of great questions and kept the conversation going. So thanks for that. And uh, keep thinking about those questions. The best thing to do is have a piece of paper, uh, notes on, on you know, or whatever you keep those on. And, and when you think of anything that you, I just don't quite understand how that works, Put write it down. <laughs> just put it on, put it in a notepad, put it on, write it down somewhere. And then if it's a first hour question, throw it in. If it's for something specific, keep those. And, and uh, when you see them and just start throwing them in, but really that really helps because you're going to get a lot more out of what we do if you do that. And of course, thanks to the, um, to the incredible team on the back end making all of this work. Um, it's, uh, it's really, really uh, an honor to have all of you putting this together every single day. It's just incredible. So thank, thank you to the uh, contribution. Uh, Tlaloc traversal today, 42,000 miles, um, 68,000 kilometers. Um, that's, uh, uh, for scale, 387 uh, million bananas. So just, just kind of keep it all in, 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 in there. So, uh, all right, um, <laughs> stick around. Uh, uh, what are we? Oh, anyway, sorry, something else. So anyway, um, uh, anyway so we're, now we're going to jump into after hours. I gotta have, I gotta have all the notes on a screen somewhere in here so that I can, like, I'm like, we, we now have all these things I'm supposed to say, and if, I, if, it, if it doesn't show up, it just, just when I'm finishing, then I don't know what to say. I'm like, oh, what else did I forget that I was gonna for a front cell or do whatever, and so now we need a screen that does that. I don't know what to figure out. Maybe a web page. I just have one of my screens. I like the screen. It's very nice. The screen. Still, Courtney, I'm still working on the power supply. It's hard. It's, it's very hard to find it. I can see why you gave it to me. <laughs> He's like, well, I'm not going to figure out where this, where I'm going to get the dang power supply. I think I'm going to build one. Um, it's just not. It's just not quite the right size. Is the pin out the same as a regular? 